truck drivers, listen up. It's time to make life a little easier out on the road with Love's Express Card. It'll save you at least 14 cents per gallon of gas at Love's Travel Stops, $25 on tire purchases, and even more on service costs, like oil changes. It's also really good for business, eliminating the hassle of cash and credit cards and bringing consistent competitive pricing no matter how big your fleet is. For more information, visit lovesfinancial.com. That's lovesfinancial.com. Bill WD-40 in to lube us up for tonight's show. Neurostream, thank you so much for that super chat, my man. Very much appreciate the love. And who else do we have in the chat room so far? We're running out of time. We got Dogface Simon, Yosef Yanni, Blue Sky. Welcome to SOR Chat. Yes, we are really live. Mark Ellens, thank you for coming on in. And Sibylla Irwin, good to see you. Hi, Russell Gill. The lovely Kira, thank you for joining us. And uh, the lovely Nicole, thank you for joining us. And let's see, who else? Uh, We're scrolling on down. Little Timmy Senor, good to have you here. I am Pam. Eric Austin, thanks for coming on in. Phil the Stalker, good to see you. Hey there, Eric Markham, good to have you here. Barry Browning, and I'm running out of time here, people. I don't know if I'll make it. Nancy Nancy Thames, thanks for joining us. Barbara Parker, welcome to the show. And the rest of you are going to get your names typed in. Hi, Monica. Horns up, let's rock. mountains of central british columbia to you listening around the world this my friends is spaced out radio i am your host dave scott sitting in the captain's chair of sor headquarters we welcome you to tonight's show and our terrestrial affiliates around north america digitally on odyssey radio talk stream live kpnl all of our archives are free join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio do me the favor hit that subscribe button you can follow us on twitter at spaced out radio instagram at spaced out radio show and on tiktok at spaced out radio our website is spacedoutradio.com we have a plethora of features for you Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Tonight's show is brought to you by Chive Charities. Help make the world 10% happier by listening to Chive Charities today. You can find them on our website. We got a great show for you tonight. Michael Schratt, famous aviation historian, is going to join us here momentarily. Then in hour number three, we're going to head to the swamp. Then little Timmy Senor will join us for the UFO report. All right, this is a night where I absolutely love it. When Michael Schratt comes on this show, he is a private pilot, aviation historian who's been investigating UFO encounters for more than a quarter of a century. So far, he has reviewed over 50,000 cases. He's been a guest and he's most wanted guest at multiple UFO conferences, including UFO Con, Phoenix MUFON, Orange County MUFON, International UFO Congress, and many, many more. When he comes on this show, the one thing I love about Michael is we always learn things. And the best part about it, Michael, for the second year in a row, will be attending our second annual Las Vegas fan party with his mentor and our good friend Jim Goodall around here. So let's bring him on in. We've got a co-host tonight. 
tonight in our good friend, random guy, Michael Schratt. It is always good to have you on Spaced Out Radio, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. How have you been? Good, good to be with you, Dave. Yeah, doing really good. How about you? You know what? I, I'm doing okay. I mean, I don't know. Okay. You know, it's all these darn Chinese balloons that are flying around that are really putting a, yeah. a few scuffs <laughs> on the UFO paint, but that's okay. We're learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Interesting current events for sure. Michael, you know, mm-hmm. you are someone who I have uh, really loved to show my admiration for. You know, and it goes way beyond uh, uh, Jim Goodall, who is just, you know, I mean, he's like a father figure to you and a, and like a, that crazy oh. uncle to me, you know. And uh, he, but I mean, you have really over the past couple uh, couple of decades here really cut your teeth into one of the most profound researchers when it comes to UFOs, because you come at it from such a different angle, from an aviation angle. How did you get started in this path? Hmm. Well, living in Chicagoland area, uh, I was within two hours, 30 minutes of Oshkosh, which is the biggest air show in the world. So I attended that with my father. Uh, I was there for 27 years in a row. And uh, one thing led to the other. And I've always had an interest in aviation. And I wanted to see what my tax dollars were buying me, you know, because we all, we all have a, a right to know since we're paying for these things and we own these assets, we should at least try to find out what we can. Anyway, uh, I started interviewing pilots, engineers, uh, people who work in defense contractors, going into university archives, uh, looking at the QFOS archives, 2457 West Peterson Avenue, going to different UFO research centers around the country and actually getting boots on the ground pulling out these files and then looking at the files that had a drawing illustration sketch and flight path report. And if it had that, it was a good candidate to do a full color rendering. And that's the job here is to preserve an important part of our national history. That's how I got started in it. The one thing that I love about you is your research goes so deep, but it's not anything that isn't in the public realm. You find all your research that has already been pre-written in other pro, uh, other programs or magazines or news articles, and then you're the guy who actually takes the time to blend it all together so all of these different pieces from around the United States or the world can somehow make sense. Uh, that that's, that's true. That's true. Uh, and then also, what, hopefully what we can talk about tonight is we want to get into the Leonard Stringfield UFO crash retrieval cases. And what was interesting about Leonard Stringfield is he wrote at least seven status reports, uh, very detailed reports. However, the names were left out of the reports, you know, under the condition of keeping these names under wraps to protect their identity. Uh, so there were no sketches or no drawings or illustrations with these cases. And so it's been my job the last almost two years now to make these cases come alive, and hopefully we can consider some of those tonight. Well, we definitely will. I, I do want to ask you, though, you know, yep. about these Chinese balloons that are allegedly going on. Do you mm-hmm. think these Chinese balloons, the one that was shot down previously and now the another one again, do you think that uh, this is going to harm the idea in the public eye about ufology and what ufology is all about? Mm, I'm very skeptical about these balloons. Uh, number one, why would the United States Air Force, the United States government, 
allow these things to go over continental United States when they can be shot down over the ocean. They knew they were coming. Uh, you know, we have assets around that can detect something like that. I just don't know what the agenda is, what the narrative is to let these things fly over the U.S. So there, there's got to be a deeper underlying narrative going on here that we're not clued in on. So I, I'm just very skeptical about it. I, and I can understand why, you know, our good friend, random guy who is here with us, he actually predicted exactly what was going to happen when that first one was taken down from the aircraft to the altitude to the missile that was going to be used. And lo and behold, the, you know, as the information came out on that one, random guy sitting there uh, with a check mark saying, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. Yeah. And uh, that was that was pretty cool to see all how that happened. You know, do you think though that uh, that there is a much more spying going on in this black project game than we actually know about as a public? And we're just getting a little taste of it, Michael. No, no doubt about it. Uh, the other side too is we could be getting played with these balloons. There could be some groups working together to put forth something. I, I think we are being played something else going on here that we're not aware of. Yep. Do you care to elaborate or are you just not comfortable with that? I'm not sure. I, I don't know what the, uh, the bottom line is, but just the fact that they would let these things fly over. Um, they knew they were coming. It's not like they had a, a, a low radar cross signature. You could definitely track that thing. So the United States government knew it was coming. Why they let it fly over anyone's guess, but I'm sure there's a good reason. Well, we're soon going to find out here, uh, mm -hmm. especially what the second one is. That's what we're waiting for, some sort of confirmation on what that yeah. actually was. You know, you have been a private pilot. You've been an aviation historian now for a long time. You know, do you prefer looking at the the dark side of aviation? And what I mean by that is the, the dark projects comparatively to UFOs, or is UFOs still your thing, Michael? Mm, well, I, I still like the, the birds that go bump in the night, just like Jim Goodall does. You know, uh, he, he prefers that as well. But I do like the crash retrieval aspect of it. The historical UFO cases are, are it's all together, actually. You know, these things, they're, they're kind of different genres of the same thing, but they all blend together because one is kind of attached to the other and they're all connected in one way or the other. So it's all important, actually. Why do you believe so strongly that we do have UFO crash retrieval parts on this planet and in our hands? Uh, that's a good question. Well, if you look at the Leonard Stringfield cases, uh, going through the 65 three-ring binders at Lunkin Airport in Cincinnati, there's 100, I counted personally 119 crash retrieval cases. And I want to make the case tonight that all we need is one out of those 119 cases to be true. And the argument for non-existent of crash retrievals falls apart completely. All we need is one. So the odds are in our favor, actually. Really? And, and do you think, uh, here's where I have a tough time believing in crash retrievals. And, and I'm saying this from mm -hmm. an experiential uh, point of view okay. is yeah. they've traveled all of this way. They've made it through wormholes, uh, time travel, uh, flying at probably faster than the speed of light. And then they get here and all of a sudden, you know, they blow a spark plug and, and go crashing into the earth. 
or maybe they can't yeah. handle our gravitational pull or what have you. Uh, you know, I, I have just a tough time believing that. I, I get your point. I get your point. I, I, uh, I respect that. I appreciate that. Uh, one thing I would say is a number of these crash retrievals are man-made craft, you know, U.S. Air Force, Atomic Energy Commission, United States Navy program. So that kind of addresses that issue. So there, there's a percentage of these crash, crashes that are ours, you know, man-made craft. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is we could be looking at a previously known high-tech civilization that's already been living on or below the surface of this planet for thousands of years. So they don't have to be 20,000 light years away. They could be right here. And so they might have some problems. Uh, if you if you look at the research of Harry Drew, talking about 1953 Kingman soft landing, that was a case where a UFO came through a high-powered experimental radar range. It affected the navigational system and it did a soft landing. So that wasn't even a crash retrieval. So those three things all tied together might account for some of these retrieval cases. So you, you're, if I get this right, you're linking in potential... You're calling them UFOs because we don't know what the craft are. But it doesn't mean that the UFO is actually of alien descent. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. Makes sense. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for, for clarifying that, Michael. You know, do you believe yep. then that we are in possession of alien uh, materials from a crash retrieval? Well, I, I got to hit you with the evidence, you know, I want to let you decide. But uh, if you if you listen very closely to what the witnesses are telling us, talking about pilots, engineers, high level military brass, uh, cosmonauts, air traffic controllers, people who are on the retrieval teams, people who loaded these things on 18 wheeler tractor trailer low boys and shipped them to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. We've got dozens and dozens and dozens well over 120 witnesses. They, they can't all be lying. One or two, three, four, five, sure. And some of these might overlap. That's, that's a possibility too. But not all of these people are lying. And so if we just go by the, the witness testimony, and a lot of these things are tracking because I am seeing a common denominator and a thread that is being woven through a number of these cases. And they have the same features. They're doing the same things. They're using the same type tools to try to, to try to breach the hull of these craft. And I'm seeing it in different locations, different times, and different witnesses, and they're all tracking. What kind of tracking do these craft do on radar? Do we know? Uh, well, they have been painted on radar. In, in 1952, early 1950s, there was an, a standing order official U.S. standing order to shoot these down. And you can look at, I've got all the newspaper clippings. I saved them for you here, and we can look at some of them. But they issued a standing order to shoot these things down. Now, if there's nothing to UFOs, as they claim, why did they ask our U.S. Air Force pilots to shoot these things down? In, in one case, there was a pilot that unloaded his entire magazine on this thing, and it hit the side of this thing, and they got it caught on gun camera footage and spooks came in and stole the footage off the plane. So it's going on. It's going on. Now, you know that if it happened once, it probably happened hundreds, not if not thousands of times. And they have a repository in the United States, probably multiple like Langley Air Force Base, McDill Air Force Base, Homestead Air Force Base, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 
where they store not only the black and white 8x10 glossy photographs of these craft from the gun camera footage, but all the motion picture film reels, including the film reel that disappeared from 1957 Gordon Cooper encounter. Do you think the Holloman Air Force Base video is real? Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. I want that Could one. Could be. I want that one to yeah. be real. I, oh, yeah. I, 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 want want to, I want to see that one so... So bad, it's my the friend. Ones that, it's the ones that we don't know about. I mean, you know they've got thousands of these motion picture film reels. Everything from World War II, everything from Vietnam. There, there was definitely something going on in Vietnam, like big time, huge UFO sightings in Vietnam. Uh, Gulf War, there were things going on. Every major military conflict, there are legitimate UFO sightings, without a doubt. Why do you think that is? Like we're seeing that in Russia versus Ukraine, that there has been a number of alleged UFO sightings. To me, it makes sense that that's where the United States would send a lot of its uh, fancy toys over there to spy on uh, what's happening on on the world, whether they're drones or whether they are, you know, advanced aircraft. I mean, I don't really believe that they're seeing them. But, I mean, we have seen uh, or or heard hundreds of reports of people, soldiers, uh, you know, uh, sky watchers seeing UFOs or what looks to be UFOs over battlegrounds. What, what do you think right. the interest is? Uh, a, a percentage of those are absolutely man-made. There's no doubt about that. The other percentage is possible they could be interdimensional. They could be something living under the oceans as a USO. Difficult to say, but... The, these witnesses cannot be denied. You're talking about military pilots encountering these things and getting them on their gun camera footage multiple times. So it's the caliber of the witnesses that just can't be denied. I wanted to ask you totally off topic here, but just yeah. random question. I remember a few years ago when you were on this show talking about, okay. we were ta- having a conversation about what replaced the SR-71. And then uh-huh. you were talking about the SR-72 right up to the SR-75 that uh, you had drawings for. And I recall this one drawing. And uh-huh. imagine the goosebumps of my arm when all of a sudden I see this this aircraft that looks ex- eerily similar to the one drawing that you had coming up on Top okay. Gun Maverick called Dark Star. Mm, yeah. How did you nail that so accurately? Well, I, I don't know if I nailed that particular configuration because now that was something that was built for the movie. Uh, that doesn't necessarily reflect an actual bird. Now, how do we know that? Because when you go beyond Mach 5, you're looking at hypersonic now, and you don't want to have a razor-sharp needlepoint leading edge on the nose of your aircraft because of the thermal heat ablation. You need a rounded blunt forward, like the X-15 has a big sphere on the front of its nose. If you have something like what they showed in that movie and you're going at, you know, they were talking about Mach 10, that entire nose would just melt right off. It needs to be much more blunt and rounded like the space shuttle is. So just on that alone, you can tell that that was kind of a sci-fi type of aircraft they mocked up. Although it was very, very close to what you were talking about, my friend. Eerily close. Well, there's a couple of birds out there, you know. 
from the Reagan administration than have not been dislodged yet. We could say that for sure. How many do you think we're at the SR seventy five point in the count or the SR seventy six? Let me tell you how it was put to me. You know how the X planes go up to like the X fifty seven and the X, you know what maybe X one hundred two or the way it was told to me is that there are twice as many X planes as being reported, and we'll leave it at that. There are twice as many than. That's a busy runway at Area 51 and places like that. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. Man, mm-hmm. that is wildly intense. There are assets that are lingering in military hangars at interesting remote facilities that have never seen the light of day to this day, still lurking in the shadows. What is the purpose of that, you think? Some of these things were uh, unsuccessful. They had malfunctions. They didn't go as planned. And they they built, they poured so many billions into it. It's an embarrassment to bring it out. Or it was a complete failure. And the funding was stolen from other programs to support the black program. And they just don't want to let it loose. Number of reasons why they keep it under wraps. Now, when you get your information like that, are you talking to sources that you trust or are you just digging that out of military files and and reports? Uh, I would say, you know, looking at university archives, going through the budget line items, uh, going through the unclassified reports that you can get the Library of Congress. You can do that. Uh, Good friends with John Andrews. Uh, He was very well connected. He had a lot of documentation, citing reports came to him, and then uh, I was able to secure a number of those, and so that's where some of the information comes from. So in your mind then, what is a UFO? I'm completely uninterested in CE1 cases. I'm, I'm really only interested in the CE2 crash retrieval, something that you have, you know, something that has some meat on the bone. When the weather app says rain, the McDonald's app says McDelivery. Order McDelivery in the McDonald's app. And participating McDonald's delivery prices may be higher than at restaurants. Delivery other fees may apply. Hi, I'm Allie Raisman. I've been living with migraine for a while. As an athlete and gymnast, I was taught to just power through the pain. Now I use Ubrelvi or Ubrojapan to treat my migraine attacks. As soon as I feel a migraine attack, I take Ubrelvi which provides me with quick relief. Once I get relief, I go on with my day. I'm partnering with Ubrelvi to share my migraine story. Ubrelvi quickly stops migraine in its tracks within two hours without worrying where you are. Most people had quick pain relief within two hours. Ubrelvi treats migraine attacks in adults and is not for prevention. It's available by prescription only. Do not take Ubrelvi with strong CYP3A4 inhibitors. Tell your healthcare provider about all the medicines you take. Most common side effects are nausea and tiredness. My hope is that by sharing my migraine story and the relief I get from Ubrelvi, it can help someone else. Ask your doctor about Ubrelvi, the anytime, anywhere migraine medicine. Learn more at ubrelvi.com or call 844-4-U-B-R-E-L-V-Y. Sponsored by AbbVie. Something substantial. Uh, just the light in the sky cases is of no interest at this point. We've got thousands of them. You can go on nightcap.org and you can just spend all day going through 1952 because that was a bigger flap than 1947, a huge flap in 1952, case after case after case. 
so many military pilots reporting things. It's undeniable. But what, what we need, and hopefully we can talk about some of these, what we need as a united coalition of UFO researchers around the world, and, and it needs to happen now, not, not 20 years from now, needs to happen now. What we need is the physical evidence of crash retrievals in the form of debris, bodies, you know, the motion picture film reels, gun camera footage, uh, pathologist report, autopsy photographs, the real physical evidence that would be filtered into the scientific community as a united coalition, and then we'll move forward. Anything less than that, we're not going anywhere. We need to do this now. It's it's way past due. That's how we're going to move forward in, in ufology. So what do you think then of groups like the Enigma Labs or or Galileo Project or UAPX or any of these groups right now who seem to be striving to take over the nuts and bolts research of ufology? Is that healthy for what we're doing? Uh, personally, I think the only thing that counts is to drill down on the crash retrieval cases because that has everything. It's got the body, it's got the debris, and it's got the craft all wrapped up in one. So personally, I think there is nothing better we can do than to drill down on the witnesses of the UFO crash retrieval, who they were with, where did the craft go to, how did they get inside, and did they reverse engineer the propulsion system and exploit the technology and incorporate that into our aircraft? Wow, that seems deep. I don't. I don't know if they're willing to give that up just yet. As we got about twenty seconds um, you, to go you, here, you better. You better believe it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you. You know it. Well, you know. Hey, I want it just as bad as you do, my friend. I do, and I know yeah. there's many in our public who would love to have that as well. But, Michael, I'm going to get you to hold on right there because we are going to go to break here at the bottom of the hour. Michael Schratt is here, aviation historian. He is one of the best. Go on YouTube and see just a plethora of his presentations from around the world. You can find his books on Amazon. And, of course, you want to meet Michael, you could join him in Las Vegas at our fan party at the Golden Nugget, May 19th through 21st. Yeah, bring him candy. He likes candy. Space Out Radio continues after this. All right, we are clear. And don't forget our YouTube audience can still hear us there, Michael. Hmm? Mike, you nailed it, brother. Like, you are... You are so on your stuff. I kind of I, I kind of know who you are, and uh, yeah. So it's a pleasure to be here. Just I'm just I just want to listen to you and jump in whenever. But uh, you, thank you. Just, I'm, I'm small fries. I'm small fries. So you know, I'm just uh, I want to know where my tax dollars are going. That's all. That's no, all. of course. But I will just say to the audience that's listening now on YouTube, uh, I would never dare interrupt you when you're dropping your knowledge. Um, but for the audience in the chat, this man is so. He's so spot on. The amount of project, everything he's talking about, I, I'm just loving this. So I appreciate you being here. Sure, sure. Hey, Absolutely. Hey, random guy, I get to tell you I told you so now. No, this guy's, this guy's a real deal. He doesn't know. Here's the thing. Um, his what The data he's reinforcing and the thing he's saying to focus on and the amount of projects and all that, it just... I'm just like, okay, cool. This guy's no, finally someone that gets it and he knows the real thing about this. And the way he's telling you guys the 
to focus in on the crash recoveries is similar to what I've been talking about is like, hey, let's cut out all this 80% of BS and let's get down to business. And I, I just, yes. it's refreshing. It's refreshing to me to hear somebody that is not privy to the information I have and he's totally on the track. And I love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. going to cost you a Coca-Cola in Vegas, random guy, when you get there for the Vegas party, because Michael doesn't drink, mm-hmm. but that's that's going to be a hard Coca-Cola right there. Uh-huh. Yeah, Mike, I apologize. I, pro- I apologize for the proxy I'm using here, because I'm still trying to figure out my place and all this, and may have that's to depart okay. or whatever, but uh, just, right. know I know, just know I know what I'm talking about, and I appreciate you. Oh, good. Thanks. That's great. Always good to, to have a good team here, so that's fine. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, random guy, that's the first, a lot of excitement I've heard in your voice uh, uh, since you've uh, been listening. That's a lot of excitement. I just don't like, I don't like to waste time. And I told you that when, when I came on board with all of this, I want us to move forward. Let's stop, let's stop, swim, let's stop swimming in a circle. Let's rule out the terrestrial yep. stuff. And, and Mike, Mike here seems like he's on board with, hey, let's get away from the stuff we know is ours. And let's look at where where the magic's happening. And I love it. I love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just wait till he gets a taste of Jim Goodall, too. Michael and Jim together. Oh, that's a you that's where you just uh you just my my anybody who goes to our Vegas party and you get a chance and an opportunity to sit down with Michael and Jim, do yourself a favor, just bring yourself some some gorilla glue and glue your lips together and just listen to him oh. talk for like three, four hours. It is it is the most it is the most awesome awesome conversation you will ever have. Hi, Intermix. Have awesome. A- Oops, sorry. Go ahead. Buddy. Thought you were done. Go ahead. No, I was just going to jump in with the Alaska shoot down. Um, I'm waiting to hear confirmation on exactly what it was. Uh, originally, it was thought it was a balloon, but I guess the debris broke up in an odd way, where it was either there was some kind of infrastructure to it that is arousing mm-hmm. suspicion or potentially a drone. So I'm waiting to hear back from that. I saw a lot of people talk about it in, in chat. It's definitely not a UFO. It's definitely terrestrial, yeah. 100%. Um, we're just trying to determine if it was drone or balloon. <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. Appreciate that. Because, you know, all that stuff eventually goes over Dave's house on the way down from Alaska. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And between me and Alaska, there's maybe, what, 300 people? If you drew a line... <laughs> well, maybe more than that. Maybe like 3,000 people. Not much. Not much. That's interesting. We've got uh, just over a minute here. Okay. Uh, y- Joseph Yanni, that would have been um, David Adair you're talking about. David Adair. Hey, great dot Cobb Maloney, how are you? Uh, let's see, where who else do we got coming on in? Uh, Ross Dog's Broken Spirit, how you doing? Jorgen Johansson, what's up, my friend? Uh, Joe twenty two twenty one, thank you. If you're new here, do us a favor, hit subscribe, ring that bell. Thank you to our super chatters tonight so far: D Cohen, Mark, Nancy, Pam H, Neuro, Carlito, JSCO and atlantis and happy birthday carlito from all of us at spaced out radio i hope you have just a wonderful time here 
And uh, thanks for joining us on your birthday. Don't forget Las Vegas, May 19th through 21st at the Golden Nugget. We want to see you all there. Go to info at spacedoutradio.com and sign up today for a VIP package. We're closing those VIPs on April 1st. Thank you, Deb, for adding to the Super Chat. Very much appreciate that. Hi, Vaughn Patrick and Dan Beer. Second half hour of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone. And I want to remind you that if you've missed portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor. Hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Here we go, second half hour with Michael Schratt, one of the top aviation historians, authors, researchers. I'm not only going to say in North America, I'm going to say the world. I mean, this is a man who has been there, done that with all sorts of research from spy planes to UFOs and everything in between. You can find his books on Amazon. Michael, remind me your YouTube channel. It's called Blue Room Media. Blue Room Media, that's right. All one word, yep. And uh, people should go subscribe there as well. Always great content. You wanted to talk about Leonard Stringfield. And a lot of his theories tonight. But please, before we get into this, introduce our audience to who Leonard Stringfield is and the importance of his research. Yeah. Leonard Stringfield was a World War II veteran. He had a very significant sighting that started his research. A very interesting Foo Fighter case that he was involved in. To make a long story short, over the period of about three to four decades, he started collecting first-hand accounts of people who were on retrieval teams, people who were on the autopsies, people who handled the debris, the bodies, people who loaded these things. Hey, me, it's you, your inner voice. Let's take a break with Nintendo Switch. Good call. Let's do it. Thanks, me. Get a Nintendo Switch today. Game and system sold separately. Everyone's talking about the rare health benefits of macadamias. Like, did you know they have more healthy fat than avocados? It's why they're so highly recommended by athletes, doctors, and diet experts. Get your fill at House of Macadamias. They have a high-quality range of delicious bars, purified oil, and nuts. So indulge in health. Any unsatisfactory orders are redeemable. And to get 20% off your purchase today, visit houseofmacadamias.com slash podcast onto 18-wheeler tractor trailers and sent them to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or MacDill Air Force Base. Uh, You know, we're talking about the first-hand high-caliber witnesses, people that were trustworthy. These weren't just lights in the sky. These were boots-on-the-ground people who held debris in their hand and recovered these craft. That's why it's so important that we look at his because, in my opinion, he got closer than anyone because he talked to people who were on these retrieval teams. And what what we want to do, if we can today, 
is I want to go through some background on, on Leonard. Uh, he wrote at least seven status reports, uh, and th- those are available in a, in a book form on Amazon. Uh, it's, it's a good, it's not for the faint of heart. If, if you're into crash retrievals and you want to dig down deep and you want to drill into these, it's good material. It's good material, but it, it needed to get illustrated, and that's what we've been doing here. So, yeah. All right. So, which case do you want to start off with? All right. First thing I want to do is I want to share my screen. Absolutely. So, so do I? You want me to go to present then? Yes. If you go to present, okay. so for our radio audience, for our radio I'm audience, gonna what's going to happen here is Michael is going to tell us all about all these pictures that he's going to put up on our YouTube screen. If you want to go and, and check it out on YouTube, you can okay. do that. Sure. Okay. So are you seeing this, Dave? Yes. You do see this. Okay. So I'm going to go from beginning. Okay. So, uh, and hopefully somehow we can make this available for people to see somehow. Uh, Retrievals of the third kind. Cosmic crashes, corpses, and cover-ups. UFO crash retrievals. The ultimate holy grail of ufology. So, why do we call UFO crash retrievals the ultimate holy grail of ufology? It's simple because the, the UFO crash retrievals, they encompass everything we need to move this field forward. It has the debris, it has the bodies, and it has the craft all wrapped up into one thing. So that's why we want to try to attain these cases as being something that will really move this field forward. Uh, a couple of quick announcements before we get rolling here. The content of each case highlighted in this presentation has remained intact for the description of the original source. Number two, the identity of first-hand sources will be protected per Leonard Stringfield's original agreement with his military contacts. Number three, the visual aids used in this presentation are computer-generated forensic composite illustrations and sketches which originate from the specific details provided by Leonard sources. All right, now, so here are the sources of where this information came from. Three-star U.S. Air Force generals, U.S. Air Force fighter pilots, astronauts, commercial pilots, air traffic controllers, neurosurgeons, pathologists, theoretical physicists and mathematicians, U.S. Army officers, U.S. Navy officers, military police, High-level Pentagon officials, top military brass, scientists, and engineers who worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and other government facilities. Uh, a couple of quick quotes here. Number one, since World War II, 50% of all documents created by the United States government have been classified top secret. Therefore, that means that we have essentially lost 50% of our national history. That was by Richard Dolan, which I think is a really good quote. You just think about the implications of what that means is we've completely lost 50% of our entire history. Uh, Number two, UFO crash retrievals can't be real because if they were, I would have read about it in the local newspaper, general public. Uh, You won't read about these in the local newspaper because these are the crown jewels. Number three, don't believe anything until it's officially denied. And then number four, there are not now, nor ever have been, any extraterrestrial visitors or equipment on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Official U.S. Air Force press release, July 1980. So I'm I'm saying here, oh yeah, let's see about that. Let's see if we can do something about that here. Uh, this is our man in question. This is Leonard Stringfield. We'll go through a couple of real quick bullet items here. 
Uh, he was born 1920. He grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the time he graduated from high school in 1939, he had already memorized the entire dictionary, which I think is a good feat. And you want that kind of person to take these reports. Uh, he joined the military as soon as he heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. After the war, he was employed by a chemical company in Ohio and retired after 30 years. Leonard wrote two books, Inside Saucer Point, Post 3-0, 1957, and Situation Red, the UFO Siege, 1977. His lecture on UFO crash retrievals at the 1978 MUFON Symposium in Dayton, Ohio, caused an international sensation. That's absolutely correct. He passed away on December 18th, 1994. Uh, real quick newspaper clipping here. Cincinnati Enquirer, July 19th, 1993. Quote, what I've collected has staggering implications for mankind. This would be the biggest thing since Christ, really. Author continues quest for truth about UFOs. So here you can see him in his office, all his paperwork here. And he had all these sources come to him, and they, they filtered down to uh, Leonard and kept it for the historical record. So uh, I want to highlight this book, UFO Crash Retrievals, The Complete Investigations by Leonard Stringfield, 1978 to 1994. So virtually everything that we'll be talking about here tonight is going to be referenced in this book. So we've got some type of a paperwork, documentation, references to back up each one of these cases this is nothing I just came up with on my own here. Uh, now, back in 2013, uh, MUFON gave me access to all of Leonard Stringfield's 65 three-ring binders, which make up the, uh, the dictatorial notes that were taken within the office complex. And these are located at Lunkin Airport, Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm going to take you inside the facility now. We're walking through the door. Now we're in the research library where you see all the file cabinets. I've laid out some of the 65 three-ring binders. These are the original binders. This is what they look like here. And we'll go ahead and open up a few of these. And so you can see that they're typewritten. There's uh, handwritten notations. There's memos in there. There's correspondence letters. It's really good material. It's really good material, something that really needs to be drilled down on. And that's what I really love to do here. Okay, so... Since I guess we're going to be in Vegas, Dave, uh, yes. I want to hit you with this number here. Uh, would you go to Las Vegas if you knew the odds were 119 to 1 in your favor? Technically, we can't lose. All we need is one of these accounts to be true, and the case for the non-existence of UFO crash retrievals completely falls apart. So bottom line is if you went to a roulette rule, uh, table at Vegas and there were 120 slots there, and you bet 119, you're going to win every time. You can't lose. And so really, odds are in our favor. We just need one of these to be true. That's all. We only need one. And, and we're off to the races here. Uh, pencil drawings by Rudy Gardea. I want to give credit to my good friend Rudy, who has helped me get these cases illustrated. So I want to give him credit. Uh, so here's where we're going to start out here. Now, this is... Uh, this is 1942, so we're already five years prior to Roswell. I want to repeat that. We are at least five years prior to Roswell here. One of the very first crash retrieval cases on record here. This is at an Army base north of Georgia. I don't know where it is, and neither did Leonard. This is somewhere north of Georgia. Source is UFO crash retrievals, page 319. Now, this is about a 15-foot diameter disc-shaped craft, about 10 feet high. 
It had markings seen on the exterior, anterior, and the inside. Now, when this thing came down, it crashed against the side of the facility, causing a hull breach on the side of the craft, showing you some of the interior components. So now that's what we've done on the detail view here. There were three levels to this craft. The upper level had a display panel, kind of looked like a control panel that had buttons and switches and dials and levers. Below that, there was what looked like four bar stools that were sitting behind a wraparound window, which you see here in the detail view and then also in the front view. On the bottom level, there was an entryway hatch. And so in a nutshell, this is the 1942 case long prior to Roswell. Uh, we'll continue on here. This is Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio, 1946. The primary witness was a private, and he dealt with records management at Wright Field. Now, remember, it was called Wright Field in 1946. It did not become Wright-Patterson Air Force Base until 1947, when the Air Force was officially founded. Source on this one, Space the Final Frontier, page 59 by Clark McClellan. I'm going to hit you with the front cover of the book. That's what the book looks like. And in this book, there's a reference to this interesting incident here. So uh, this courier goes into this hangar, and he's to, to uh, deliver a very important message. He meets a friend inside the hangar who's an MP, and he says, you know what? I want to show you something. So he walks him to the side of the hangar, and sitting on the concrete hangar floor is this sketch right here, 15-foot diameter, 7 feet tall. It had a number of rectangular windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft, no visible means of propulsion, uh, these were transparent windows, and they could see a three-foot diameter central column that went from the bottom of the craft all the way to the top. There were no visible seams, no rivets, no fasteners of any kind. This thing had arrived from Arkansas on a railroad car, basically. Here is my cleaned-up AutoCAD drawing, and again, no rivets, no welds, no seams, no hatches, no seats, uh, <laughs> no visible means of propulsion. Again, one foot six inch flat section that wrapped around feeling stuck when it comes to writing jasper is an ai writing assistant that helps you break through writer's block create blogs social content add variations really anything you can imagine much faster than you would on your own with jasper's text to image generator you can even create original art convey your best ideas better and faster with jasper no more blank pages or unfinished pieces Try Jasper for free at jasper.ai today. Feeling stuck when it comes to writing? Jasper is an AI writing assistant that helps you break through writer's block, create blogs, social content, add variations, really anything you can imagine, much faster than you would on your own. With Jasper's text-to-image generator, you can even create original art, convey your best ideas better and faster with Jasper. No more blank pages or unfinished pieces. Try Jasper for free at jasper.ai today. The outer circumference. Now, if you look closely here, you'll see a red dot. Not sure if that shows up for you, Dave, but I've got a red red dot here, and this is the attempted point of entry where the white lab coat technicians were using a diamond tip drill bit to get inside the craft. And I've got three of these cases now where our lab coat technicians were trying to breach the hull of these craft, desperately trying to get inside. In some cases, I don't think they ever got inside. So let's see if we can do a little better here. Let me hit you with this full color 
illustration by my good friend Joseph Rake based on my sketch here. Right. And we've pulled back the skin to show you what the interior of this thing looks like on the upper right. This thing is antiseptically sterile. This is back in 46. So even on this case, we're still prior to Roswell. Now you factor in uh, Cape Girardeau, 1941, and then you also factor in Battle Los Angeles where two craft were recovered. So now we're already talking about four craft prior to Roswell. Uh, this is my first attempt at rendering this craft. We'll move forward here. Here's Rudy's sketch that shows you they had a tarp on the right-hand side. There was a toolbox sitting just in forward on the uh, forward section of the sketch here. And then off to the left on the floor, you've got the electric drill with the diamond tip drill that, that they were desperately trying to get inside. See, that that's, that's the crux of the matter. If they're able to reverse engineer the you could call it the atomic structure of the metal itself, and then incorporate that into our aircraft, we would have a huge advantage, an absolute huge advantage. Now, here is our final rendering of what this may have looked like if you were actually there. I want to give credit to my good friend, Joseph Wraith. So again, this is 1946, arrived by a uh, railroad boxcar from a retrieval operation in Arkansas. Next one, right field, Dayton, Ohio, 1946, references page 242-243. Now, this is hangar complex four, and I believe it was this complex that this happened. I'm not sure, but it, it could have been this complex. Now, in this case, there was a connecting adjoining cafeteria to this facility, and a six-year-old boy was brought to the hangar because it was the father's workday. He brought his son and this son uh, was getting a pop from one of these vintage pop bending machines. This is back in 1946. And there was a janitor who wanted to buy the six-year-old boy a pop. And so he turned to his father and he said, uh, this, this janitor wants to give me a pop. Is it okay? And he said, yes. So this janitor bought this young man a, a pop here. And you can see he's got the uh, soda pop in his hand. The second he was given that soda pop, Someone from the adjoining hangar came through this door, and this six-year-old boy peered inside the hangar. And I want to take you inside the hangar now. This is what he saw looking from the cafeteria inside the hangar. What he saw was a very interesting dish-shaped craft that was on tripod landing gear. There were two 18-wheeler tractor-trailer low boys with tarped debris on top that was of various sizes and shapes. There was at least one... Uh, jeep there and then there were two to three bodies laying on the floor that were partially covered that's what he saw we'll move forward to the original sketch here this is the preliminary sketch and then we'll go ahead and do a refinement and this is our final rendering here craft was 20 feet in diameter with the tripod legs and then the uh, flat band wrapped around the outer circumference it kind of had two bands wrapped around the flat section of the craft itself now in the background of the hangar you can see this boy looking through the cafeteria door inside here, and it made an impression on him, totally made an impression on him. In the foreground to the left, you can see these bodies, and the motif of these bodies is like virtually identical on case after case. These things are about three and a half to four feet tall. They have oversized head, oversized eyes, slit for a mouth, minute nose, and then emaciated arms that go down beyond the knees. That's what we're talking about here. Now, 
Are you still with me, Dave? I am still with you, my man. Okay, you're still with me. I'm going to hit you with the 22-inch rims on this one. Okay. okay? This, is a, this is a world exclusive for you. So let's see if we can do this. Now, I got a full-color rendering by my good friend Joel. So I got to give him credit for this one. But this is our finalized rendering of what it may have looked like inside the hangar. So now, you know, starting in 41 with Cape Girardeau, now we're on this case. Now we've got five crash retrievals. Uh, we've got the debris. We've got the body. And this this is still before Roswell. So, again, the, the numbers are adding up in our favor here. All right, let's move on to the next one here. Papagos Indian Reservation, west of Globe, Arizona, January 1947. So if you look at this pin prick dot here, you can see that where this thing was recovered was east of the Superstition Mountains, west of Globe, somewhere in this area right here, plus or minus three miles, I'm going to give it. Uh, this witness, he served in the U.S. Navy during World War II, and this is page 93, case A10 for the reference. So the uh, two men in a Jeep are scouting out landscape, and they come across two military police that challenge them. And basically said, what are you doing here? You shouldn't even be here. Off to the left by about 100 to 200 feet was a dish-shaped craft, 30 feet in diameter, augered in at about a 30-degree angle. Uh, it was about 18 feet high. It had two rims, similar to the last case, two ridges wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft itself. And then what looked like, you could call them square-cut sections within these two bands. And this is... A very good case, not too far west of Globe, Arizona, uh, within the Stringfield cases. And we'll move on to the next case here. White Sands Missile Range, July 4th, 1947. Isn't that interesting? Because we know that this is almost identical time for Roswell, 1947. Reference for this is page 196. So what we want to look at here is kind of the upper section of White Sands Missile Range. This is the actual... Uh, location map here and this has to do with a craft that measured between 150 about 100 to 150 feet in diameter and what's interesting here is they had this thing excruciatingly well lit this thing came down at night and they brought in these light all units they had a couple of tents there were people walking on the rim of this thing they were using geiger counters there was a troop transport in the back there and they were taking motion picture film reels while all this is going on. So not only do they have the debris, the bodies, the craft, but they've got the black and white glossy 8x10 photographs, and they've got the motion picture film reels. So the next time you hear these senators and congressmen stand up in Washington, D.C. And, and claim that we don't have any knowledge of any of this, we'll, we'll go into this a little bit later, but... There's two things going on here. Either, either number one, they're lying, or number two, they've never been briefed or read in on the program. So they wouldn't know. So will we give them a pass? Maybe, but we're not going to let them get away with this because some of these people are people that should know about this. They have not been given clearance. They have not been read into these programs. So by de default, they wouldn't know about it. Next one, UFO crash retrieval 1947. This was seen at a warehouse at Berkeley University. This is page 197, UFO crash retrievals from the book. So this lab coat technician is at Berkeley. He's working on a special project. He's at the right place at the right time 
when this 18-wheeler tractor-trailer low boy backs into the warehouse at Berkeley University. Berkeley University. This is what it looked like when this thing backed in here. This was an egg-shaped craft, 30 feet across, about 15 feet high. Now picture just an egg that's 30 feet across sitting on this low boy tractor trailer. Now the primary witness said that there was a hull breach on the side of the cracked egg, which basically exposed a three-foot diameter sphere. You could call it a central yolk of the egg. He said that there was a composite panel forward section on this craft, and then there was another composite panel that wrapped around the outer circumference of the sphere itself. Off to the right, there's what looked like a hull breach that may have been involved in an internal implosion that pushed off debris and shrapnel from the inside of the craft. That's what may explain this. So my question on this is, number one, is, is this the entire UFO, or is just it's just the propulsion system of something much bigger. I don't know. It's possible it could be both, but very interesting case from Berkeley. Uh, next one. This is a carrot patch south of Salinas, California, July, August, 1947. This is from the Dictation Notes collection. Uh, I've got the original sketches. This has to do with 19-year-old boy, two 19-year-old boys who were working in the carrot patch. This thing came down the night before. They didn't know about this until the foreman told them the next morning. So here you can see the carrot patch. I'm going to move forward here. Here's the original sketch that came with the report. This thing was nine feet in diameter, four feet tall. It had a double row of rectangular cutout windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft itself. It had a flat top. And we'll move ahead to the X marks the spot. Michael, so Michael I'm going to get you to hold on the- right there because we do have to go to break here at the top of the hour. Okay. Your presentation is phenomenal on Leonard Stringfield. And I encourage all of our radio audience members to actually go over and rewatch this again while on our YouTube channel because the pictures that go along with it make it even more phenomenal. And this is why feeling stuck when it comes to writing. Jasper is an AI writing assistant that helps you break through writer's block, create blogs, social content, add variations, really anything you can imagine much faster than you would on your own. With Jasper's text-to-image generator, you can even create original art. Convey your best ideas better and faster with Jasper. No more blank pages or unfinished pieces. Try Jasper for free at jasper.ai today. Businesses need to think beyond today. That's why ADP uses data-driven insights to design HR solutions to help your business find more success tomorrow. HR, time, talent, benefits, payroll, ADP, always designing for people. We love Michael Schrad around here, aviation historian, author, researcher, just a fantastic guy. Find his YouTube channel at Blue Room Media, all one word, Blue Room Media. Make sure you go log into that. Spaced Out Radio's Hour 2, coming up next. All right, I'll get you to pause on that. And uh, random guy, I know you you're uh, kind of excited about this because of reading your text messages. <laughs> yeah, no, this is cool stuff, man. I think it's really interesting. Um, some of the things that take me back is just, um, I don't know. It's hard for me because I got I got a total line here um, without giving operational knowledge, but I'll just say uh, 
some of the examples given for the craft that are seen, like mm-hmm. I'll give an example that's pretty simple. Why is there 12 windows in an inter- intergalactic craft? Okay. Right. Why is there glass mediums and something that needs to be anti-gravity? When we yeah. know the molecular structure of glass, <laughs> it doesn't take a whole lot of resonance frequency to bust that, right? And when do you think in transition that would be unrealistic for any entity traveling in that graph, whether terrestrial or otherwise? Good point. Yeah, good point. And um, I also know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, UFO spoofs were provided to basically go mess with our enemies that were developed intentionally misinformation, intentionally to waste their resources uh, investigating. So mm-hmm. it is. I'm not saying any of this per- pertains to this specifically, but it just reminds me of we need to be hesitant and an- analyze it in a world of counterintelligence and take the whole picture in on some of these things may have been intentionally developed to mislead our adversaries. I, I can't deny that's possible. Yeah, that's that could be possible. Yep. So that was all I, I love. I'm, I'm digging this. I, I'm just uh, one thing about me. I'm a huge skeptic. I know a lot of things that are accurate. And so like, I'm just a big skeptic. And when I look at this and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. He's spot on with our projects. This guy knows everything. And then when I start seeing renders and it has a windows in it, I'm like, all right. Oh wait, it had a red and a green light. Where do we know red and green lights from sir and aviation, (laughs) you know, like whatever. There's certain things, there's certain tendencies that if you are an aviation person, which clearly you are, you're like, okay, I at least have to, understand why would they choose those color lights why would they choose to have visible light interference within the cockpit whatever entity of the craft it is stuff like that mm-hmm. that's all yep yep did dave leave us to our own devices i don't know <laughs> <laughs> dave's out dave left the chair oh. who's moving the chair right now who's got a pay- who's got a question for michael I'll run, I'll run this. Let's go, chat. Ask a question to Mike. Well, you got him without Dave. Waiting to see something pop up here. Yeah, YJ, that's possible. It could be camouflage. They could be manipulating and try to clone the way our aircraft travel. For sure. Jeremy Jones, what are random guys' credentials again? Uh, I'm a random guy that knows random things, but more moreover, I pretty much know what the hell I'm doing. We'll go into that later. I just got to figure out from from the powers to be what I'm actually allowed to say. Um, do you know how to fly? You, are you a pilot yourself, Michael? I am a private pilot. Yes. Awesome. Are you IFR rated or just I'm VFR? Not IFR rated. Nope, I am not. Okay. Cool. Do you have a plane? What, what are you flying? Like a I sold my plane about eighteen years ago, and it's been it's been over fifteen years. Yeah. What'd you have, Cessna? I had a Diamond Katana DA twenty A one. Oh, nice. I grew up flying in the nineties in a Piper Cherokee in a Cessna one twenty tail dragger. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, that's yeah, good. Corona. Cool. Corona Airport, Southern California. We used to call it L sixty six back nice. in the Moran days. Nice. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's great. Were you ever in the military? You have a question from chat, Michael. Never in the military. No. 
Nope. Never okay. I have a lot of electrical interference on my microphone. I apologize. I'm on a, actually using an iPad right now, so I apologize uh -huh. if I'm coming off poorly. Tailjerry. Yeah, the Cessna 120, we took off at like. I think our rotation speed was like 55 knots. That's <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's a. I think that lands at about 45, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and flying and stuff. Back in the early 90s, late 80s, it wasn't a big deal. But when uh, they started moving the, the airspace, the Class BC, and uh, everything expanded, it got it got to a mess, and I stopped flying. But it was it was fun there in the late 80s, early 90s. Sure, sure, yep, yep. You have a question, Michael? Hmm? Have you? You, you know the old saying about or... aviation, right? You know the old saying. The old saying about aviation. What's that? If God meant for man to fly, would have given him more money. <laughs> that sounds like the government definition of aviation. Yeah. <laughs> Sound like a lot of project managers I know, I've known through the years. <laughs> We've got about 45 seconds, guys. I'm going to get you guys to hold on here. I want to say thank you to D. Cohen, Mark, Nancy, Pam H., Nero, Carlito, JSCO, Atlantis, and Deb for the amazing Super Chats. It's a wonderful way to support what we do on this show on a nightly basis. And uh, no BS news. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? And a big thank you to everybody tuning in. If you're new here, do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button. We are here seven days a week. And, of course, I will be in San Francisco March 17th through 19th at UFOCon 2023. Go to UFOCon2023.com to get your tickets today. I will be emceeing. Come and say hello. Here we go with the second hour, everyone. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and on Facebook Spaced Out Radio Show. Here we go with hour number two of Spaced Out Radio tonight. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for tuning us on in wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Yonside, Yonside is your password. Use it wisely, Space Travelers, as a clam sets a password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. We are getting a learning lesson indeed in aviation when it comes to potential UFO crash retrievals. The legendary Michael Schratt is with us. He's an aviation historian, author, researcher. You can find him on Blue Maroon Media. That's Blue Room Media, all one word, on YouTube. Make sure you hit subscribe there. His books are on Amazon. We're talking about crash retrievals and the former researcher, Leonard Stringfield. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. So let's continue on this Salinas, California retrieval operation. Uh, this is the bullseye that shows you where this thing came down. So if you look at the top of the map, you've got Salinas. And then if you follow the 101 South... 
where this Gonzalez is, that's where this thing came down. So now I want to take you to the first draft rendering here based on the original sketch. Again, this thing was nine feet in diameter, four feet tall. So it wasn't a real big craft. And it had this butter knife caught up flat section on the top of the craft itself. Here is the first pass SolidWorks rendering on it. And then here is Rudy's drawing that shows you what this thing looked like. So it, it was definitely put on the trailer. They moved it out of here. They told the two 19-year-old boys to move away from the retrieval operation while all this is going on. But they were still well within an eighth of a mile away, so they got to see everything. They saw the entire retrieval operation. Uh, so now I want to take you to our full-color rendering by Joel Payne. He did a great job. This shows you what it may have looked like. And what the goal here is to take these original sketches and try to make these cases come alive and really preserve our national history here. Uh, next one, I really like this case. This has to do with a C-119 flying boxcar, which you see here. And this is Sierra Madre Valley, Mexico, sometime prior to 1951. So I'm thinking about 1948 timeframe, and this is page 32 UFO crash retrievals. So if we take a real good look at this airplane, and if we turn this thing around, we'll look at the uh, cargo bay in the back here. Now, I'll set up the scene. A very interesting, smaller, dish-shaped craft came down, and we can gauge what the size was by the inside wall of the cargo bay. That's what's going to tell us how big this craft was. And there was a construction worker who was working nearby where this thing came down. So they flew in the C-119 to retrieve it. They asked for assistance by this construction. Businesses need to think beyond today. That's why ADP uses data-driven insights to design HR solutions to help your business find more success tomorrow. HR, time, talent, benefits, payroll. ADP, always designing for people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your engine with Syntec Full Synthetic Motor Oil at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Syntec is designed for today's engines to dissipate heat and reduce friction and wear. Get five parts of Syntec Full Synthetic and a MicroGuard Select oil filter for just $33.99, plus two times O Rewards points. Choose Syntec, available exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. worker believe it or not it's in the report so he comes over he helps the americans load this thing into the back of the c-119 and then they fly it out so here's what the uh, c-119 looks at looking aft and the cargo bay is nine feet ten inches wide so that means that your dish-shaped craft cannot be any more than nine feet six inches which allows two inches on either side for clearance that's how we gauge the size of the disc itself. So let's open up the cargo bay. Let's get to the retrieval operation. And this is what it may have looked like when they were bringing this interesting dish-shaped craft up inside the aft end of the cargo bay of the C-119. Now I want to take you to the full-color rendering by Joseph Wraith. And here's, here's where we're at right now. There were three bodies recovered. Uh, they were charred. And that's something that comes up multiple times here. Let me see if I can do an enlargement that gives you a little bit better view here. Now we can see it's uh, in, in full respect here. They're definitely involved in the final part of the retrieval operation, getting ready to move this thing out here, probably shipped to Wrightfield, Dayton, Ohio, like where all these things end up. 
and then they kind of fan out from there. But it, it definitely appears that all roads originally lead to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Next one, Naval Air Station, Sunnyvale, California, 1950. This is a radar operator at Hangar 1, which is there today. You can go to this hangar right now. Uh, sources, UFO crash retrievals, case B5, page 57. So in this case, this particular personnel, somehow he got through an adjoining doorway and he was met with a guard and what he saw just getting into this facility here was about a 100-foot diameter dish-shaped craft with a roll of uh, windows wrapped around the outer circumference. He was challenged by the guard, and then he had to leave immediately. But he got a good look at this thing. And if you read the book, you can go into detail the account. But all of these cases have at least some kind of reference or paperwork to back them up. It's not something I just came up with here. All right, next one. This has to do with a former military officer. This is page 212, page 213. He worked at a classified materials library. I don't know where this was, and neither did Leonard, because the primary eyewitness wouldn't say anything that could trace him back to where this was. So he's at this former uh, materials library. He opens up one of these file cabinet drawers, and inside the file cabinet, was a folder that was definitely marked retrieval cases. And there were photographs in there. There were autopsy reports. There was documentation, the kind of proof and evidence that we really need. So what I want to do now is I want to take you inside this file cabinet. We're going to open up one of these drawers, and I'm going to show you what this photograph looked like based on the sketch and eyewitness report. This is what it looked like. This is sometime prior to 1950 time frame. This thing was 36 feet in diameter. It had a roll of uh, circular windows wrapped around the outer circumference of a small dome. And again, they had autopsy reports here, other 8 by 10 And I want to go to the next slide that gives you the breakdown here of the key points. So military officer had the correct security clearance, which gave him access to a classified materials library. Number two. Reports seen by witness made reference to crashes, plural, more than one, and that bodies were recovered. Number three, in addition, diamond tip drill. So there's this diamond tip drill again. This is the second time we've heard this. And acetylene torches were used to gain access to the interior. Reference 1946 craft seen at Wright-Patterson that we talked about in the beginning. And 40-foot diameter craft guarded by U.S. Marine by December 1963. Next one. Eventually, technicians were able to gain access to the interior of the craft by way of a small entry hatch. The report said, referring to the door, that it was almost as if the material of the craft liquefied and then solidified again. So in other words, the quote-unquote seams for this entryway hatch were so fully integrated into the craft itself, you could not even see the outline. And this is something that comes up again, too. I've seen this same almost identical description of this entryway hatch on at least two cases now. So the diamond tip drill bits are checking out. The acetylene torches are checking out. And these fully integrated hatchway doors are checking out as well. Uh, next one here. Albuquerque Journal, March 18th, 1950. There was definitely something going on in Farmington, no doubt about it. 
Hundreds at Farmington report large force of flying saucers. 500 of these things came by, seen by hundreds of witnesses. There was a quote-unquote leader that was leading the pack, and these things were making 90-degree left-angle turns. They were making backward flying formations, so very erratic flight path. And this is where we want to get into here. Uh, During the 1950s, early 1950s, there was an official order issued by Air Force pilots uh, to shoot the flying saucers down. This is the the order they were given. Cincinnati Inquirer, July 29, 1952. Shoot saucers down. Jet pilots so ordered in 24-hour air alerts. A couple other quick headlines here. Jets keeping 24-hour alert for saucers. Pilots ordered to down objects if they don't land. On the saucer trail, pilots told shoot them down. Jets on 24-hour alert to shoot down saucers. So these, this is the aircraft that they were primarily using. It's the F-94 Starfire. We'll move again here, one forward. And you can see in the up, uh, upper photograph, we've got the nose of the Starfire with the fully integrated doors intact. Now, you can open up these doors, which has these rockets in the nose. And that's what these intercepts were actually going for here. And this is based on the eyewitness testimony of just a couple of these intercepts that did take place uh, during the early 1950s when the standing order was handed down to our Air Force pilots. Now, what I want to do now is I want to take you to this very interesting notation that was given to Leonard here, and we'll just rip through this really quickly. It says here, and this is from a letter to Leonard Stringfield from Mildred Bissell. This is October 2nd, 1979. Here's what she wrote. I heard you speak at the Mutfon Symposium in Dayton last year, and I am interested in your research on retrievals of the third kind. I gave a talk at a local library last week, and in the discussion period following, a fellow told me that when he was a gunner in the Air Force, he had emptied his guns on a UFO and had taken pictures with his gun camera that clearly showed the shells exploding against the side of the craft. He said the camera was taken off the wing of his plane when it landed, and the pictures developed. At 2 a.m., a couple of military policemen came and got him out of bed and took him to the base auditorium. They ran the 17 seconds of movie of the UFO over and over and questioned him and two other crew members until 10 a.m. He was warned never to tell anyone what had happened. He said he had a wife and family, a good job, and a lot to lose. He seemed afraid of the CIA and wouldn't even give me his name. So if we break this down, so this guy... He unloads an an entire magazine onto this thing. It hits the side of the craft. They got it all completely caught on gun camera footage. Spook groups came in, took the footage, and it disappeared into this mythical vault somewhere, this closing scene of Indiana Jones where they've got crates of these things. And I'm, I'm sure they have more than one repository because they don't want to put all their assets in one place. If they have a fire at one of these facilities, they're going to destroy their historical record. So I'm sure they have backup copies to the backup copies and sent it multiple locations around the country. It has to be that way. It absolutely has to be that way. Next one, Pentagon, 1952. This is page 152, case one, source UFO crash retrievals. Uh, This has to do with an office manager who went down to the underground basement at the Pentagon. They have have an absolute basement there. 
And somehow she went through an off-limits doorway into her room, and it was kind of a dark, dusty, musty room. It had some boxes off to the side. She kind of does a 180 turn, and what, what does she see in this off-limit room that she wasn't supposed to be in? She got there by accident. This is what she said she saw. She, she said that she saw a pickled alien in a glass container. And she was absolutely shocked. Within about five seconds of her looking at this thing, there was an MP that grabbed her arm, told her to leave immediately, and she had to sign papers that she wouldn't talk about it. She eventually did discuss it, but she wouldn't take it any further whatsoever. But this came from this office worker at the Pentagon. So, again, it's her word against the United States government. She was there. She was there. This is what it may have looked like. Uh, This is from my good friend Joseph Wraith. We'll move forward. Her Camp Polk. <clears throat> this is summer 1953. Uh, private in the Army. That's the person that we're going to be talking about here. This is case A1, page 80. Now, I'm going to give you the breakdown here. So, the military personnel involved in this case saw this case from beginning to end. They saw the whole thing come down. This is about a, this is an egg-shaped craft, 30 feet across. It had this ridge wrapped around the outer portion of the craft that was still rotating. And there were four bodies recovered. One came out on a stretcher. The other three were assisted by military police when they got, you can see the, the entryway door here. Now, what they, they had a very interesting helmet section that wrapped down under their chin. So they were like featureless on their face and they were wearing what looked like mittens these things were three and a half feet tall, basically. They had a very slight build, and they had no knee joints. So when they were moving across the, the ground, it was a very rigid, uh, only bending at the hips. So it was a very, you could call it stair-step maneuver when they were walking on the ground. Very interesting case. Uh, next one, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1953. This has to do with a warrant officer. Really like this case. It's I believe this guy. I really do. This is page 15, abstract number eight by Leonard Stringfield. So the setup here is Leonard gave a lecture at Lunkin Airport in Cincinnati to a group of these pilots and Air Force personnel. After the lecture, one of these guys pulls Leonard aside. He brings him to the big map at Lunkin Airport, which is still there today. You can go there and you can see that very same map. And this guy said, you know what, Uh, I was involved in a very interesting incident, and I believe it took place during 1953 somewhere in Arizona. That's what he told Leonard. And he started talking about what he saw. He broke down the entire case. So what actually happened? There was a DC-7 four-engine transport that pulled up onto the tarmac. This is at night at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1953. I don't know if it was this hangar that I have indicated here. This is hangar complex number four. Bay E is on the far right-hand side where the arrow is. I'm going to move forward. That shows you what the hangar looks like. So you can imagine this aircraft taxis up onto the tarmac. They open up the hangar doors. The craft taxis in, they shut the hangar doors. And and what did this warrant officer see? Because he was at the right place at the right time. He was at the right time. This is what it may have looked like outside here. So we've got the DC-7. You can see the port cargo hatch on the far left-hand side of the aircraft with a forklift. Very much, you know, almost identical to what this 
warrant officer is reporting. So let's take this scene and we'll bring it inside the hangar and get a little bit more accuracy here. This is what it looked like. So you can see on the upper left, the hatchway doors open. They had a forklift driver come in here and he lifted up from the cargo bay and dropped it down onto the floor. There were five crates and three of the crates had the tops pulled off showing and exposing these small three foot long, you could call it, they were laying on the side. They were about three and a half feet tall. Again, they had a large oversized head, oversized eyes, a slit for a mouth, minute nose. They were wearing a one-piece tight-fitting flight suit. One was female, and he said that they were all being suspended off the bottom of the crates by a fabric to protect them from the dry ice freezer burn. That's what he mentioned. He was standing close by. He got a good look inside these crates here. So here's the full-color rendering of what it may have looked like. Now, he was also told that the boxes which came with the bodies contained the debris from the retrieval and they didn't retrieve the craft itself. So not only was this a crash retrieval, but they got the debris and they got the bodies. So this is a very interesting and important case here. Here's a top view looking down from his perspective. So this may have been what it looked like. Uh, so how did the U.S. Air Force know where and when the craft would come down? The craft was picked up by special tracking equipment at Mount Polymer Observatory in California and then shipped to Rock Patterson Air Force Base. Next one, Dutton, Montana, 1953, page 16, from the retrieval book. So in this case, the primary eyewitness was in a pickup truck. He's driving down the road. There's traffic coming in the opposite direction. He looks up and kind of over to the left. And what does he see? He sees this. And I'm going to go to the next one here. He sees this 300-foot-long cigar-shaped craft that's tapered at both ends. It's tipped up at about an 80-degree angle, and there is fire and smoke belching from the bottom of this thing. This thing is trying to pull itself up off the ground even further, but it's having a hard time. There's something going on with the propulsion system of this craft that's malfunctioning, and there's just smoke and fire belching out from this. Now, he also said that the oncoming traffic the tailpipes, the tailpipes were on fire as this thing was driving by, as he was driving by. Now, he pulled into a restaurant. He filed a report with the restaurant manager. There was a policeman who also filed a report. Somehow, that policeman told one of the generals at the local base. And the next morning, this guy who had the sighting, who was driving the pickup truck, he got a call from one of these officers, and, and, and the call went like this, I want to see you. So he went down to this base, and he had to sign security pay, uh, papers. He was interrogated big time. And then as he was leaving to go back to his truck, he saw two men with bags over their shoulders, and one of these guys dropped the bag, and it was his impression that it looked like human body parts. He couldn't tell for sure. They could be, quote-unquote, alien. They could be human. However, the form that was made within these bags looked human to him. And so this is where this took place. And this is Great Falls Air Force Base, which is later named Malmstrom Air Force Base, where there's been a number of interesting UFO incursions at that location. Now, just so you think that this is an isolated case, this is San Paulo, Argentina, December 7, 1954, where three dish-shaped craft popped out of the bottom iris of the craft itself, and this thing 
was belching out smoke as well. So it's not a completely isolated incident here. Here's our full color running of what this may have looked like. Next one, Walker Air Force Base, New Mexico, April 12, 1954. This is 1954 to 1955. He served in the Air Force, and this is page 182 as the reference. Now, in this case, and we'll move again, again to the next slide here, he was training, and this is Walker, which used to be the 509th Bomb Group at Roswell Army Airfield, which was later named to Walker Air Force Base. He was training in an H-19 helicopter. He was paying, playing ping pong when alert came. He was told to get on board the helicopter because he was taking photographs. So the helicopter takes off. They head northbound, directly north of Roswell. They make a left-hand turn. Now they're heading northwest. They go about another five to ten minutes, and this was at night. And they finally got to the scene, and what did they see? They saw a 40 to 50-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. Uh, you could say augered in at about a 45-degree angle. They were shining a spotlight down from the bottom of this helicopter to the craft scene itself. And the primary eyewitness had a side entry hatch door open. He was taking photographs of this entire operation. Uh, the, the, the helicopter landed near where this craft came down. He got in touch with the retrieval operation members, and later they found out that there were four bodies and one more still in the craft for a grand total of five that were retrieved. Oh, Michael. Interesting case. Now, yep, go ahead. I'm going to get you to hold on right there because we do, unfortunately, have to go to break at the bottom of the hour. Aviation okay. historian okay. Michael Schratt breaking down Leonard Stringfield's UFO crash retrieval theories. It's an amazing report. We're going to get to more with Michael when we return. If you are interested in learning more about Michael's research, you can find his books on Amazon or head over to YouTube and hit subscribe on his channel, Blue Room Media. All one word, Blue Room Media. We return with the legendary Michael Schrack. It is UFO research on crash retrievals next on Spaced Out Radio. All right, we are clear. Very cool. Michael, you're doing awesome once again in schooling us. Thank you. I'm learning too, so, you know, it's always a learning experience. You having fun? Yep, I always like to do this. It's always good to be with you. Oh, we love it when you're here, dude. Love it when <laughs> you're here. I got a new shirt for you coming, too. You got a new shirt. Uh-oh. We only have 30 more minutes, my friend. 30 okay. more minutes. Are you going to be able to fit it all in? No problem. Well, we will definitely get through a couple more cases here for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Plenty of cases till the next ice age. No problem. Just means you got to come back again. Ah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, Uncle Jim is in the chat room if you haven't seen. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Hi, Uncle Jim Goodall. How you doing, buddy? Random guy, how you doing? You having fun? I'm hanging. I'm hanging in here. I'm loving it. Right on. Right on. 
There's uh, Uncle Jimmy right there. We love Uncle Jimmy. The Golden Voice, Central BC. And the incredible Michael Schratt. Oh, we love Jim. Love, love, love Jim. Let's see. We got 331 people watching on YouTube right now. If you can, do, (laughs) do us a favor Give us a thumbs up or down what if you're enjoying the tonight's show. And uh, if you haven't already, do us a favor. Hit that subscribe button. We are here seven days of work. Uh, pardon me, seven days. Welcome to the CPAP Games live from the Hayes bedroom. It's another eventful night, Bruce. It sure is, Ron. Steve has been flailing everywhere, struggling with this CPAP. His wife, Michelle, is as tense as a fiddle string trying to contain her rage. Michelle's rolling Steve over. There he goes, and the mask is off. Oh, my, the snoring. Michelle throws an elbow, now a shove. And she's leaving for the couch, taking her place as the Hayes' 100-pound lab. Bask in that dog breath, Steve. With all this struggle, Steve should get Inspire. Absolutely, Bruce. Inspire is a sleep apnea treatment that gives you comfortable, restful sleep with the click of a remote. That's right, a button. As you sleep, Inspire keeps you breathing normally and sleeping peacefully. There's no mask and no hose. Just sleep. Learn more at InspireSleep.com. That's InspireSleep.com. Inspire, sleep apnea innovation. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at inspiresleep.com. Welcome to the CPAP Games live from the Hayes bedroom. It's another eventful night, Bruce. It sure is, Ron. Steve has been struggling with this CPAP. His wife, Michelle, is trying to contain her rage. Michelle throws an elbow. Ah! She's leaving for the couch. Steve should get Inspire. Absolutely, Bruce. Inspire is a sleep apnea treatment that gives you comfortable, restful sleep with the click of a remote. There's no mask and no hose. Just sleep. Learn more at InspireSleep.com. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com days a week for your listening entertainment about everything uh, from UFOs to paranormal supernatural all sorts of stuff we'd really appreciate the love and uh, yeah even random guys friends are now starting to hit the subscribe button went back on mute Gemma Jackson, how you doing? Sovereign Farts, how you doing? Uh, Mr. Catfish, nice to see you. Michael, are you speaking at any conferences coming up here? Uh, I have something next month, and then I guess I'm going to be doing uh, Contact in the Desert. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Hi, D. Swagger.
was that? Nancy, thank you so much for that amazing super chat. Very much appreciate that, Nancy. Thank you so, so much. Wow, very kind. Uh, thank you to Nancy times two, Jeremy, Deb Atlantis, JSCO, Carlito, Neuro, Pam, Mark, and D. Cohen for the Super Chats. Very much appreciate the love. and We want to see you all in Vegas. Joining myself, Random Guy, Tim Senor, Michael Schratt, Jim Goodall, and many others at our second annual fan party. Go to info at spacedoutradio.com. Get your tickets today. Here we go. so much for joining us very much appreciate earning your listening ears want to remind you that if you've missed portions of this show or others check out our free archives at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio do me the favor hit that subscribe button you can find us all on the podcast section as well from iHeartRadio to itunes to spotify and every other major podcast network as well our website is spaced spacedoutradio.com we have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Here we go, final half hour with the legend himself, Michael Schratt, aviation historian, taking us through an education process of Leonard Stringfield's potential crash retrieval history. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Michael's YouTube channel is Blue Room Media. Make sure you hit subscribe on that. Michael, where are you taking us here? Good good to be with you. So we are going to continue here, and our discussion is going to cover a book by my good friend Noe Torrey and Ruben. They are the principal investigators on the other Roswell UFO crash on the Texas-Mexican border. So... The setup here is there were two B-47s that were heading westbound. This is very near the Texas-Mexican border. And they were being escorted by four F-86 Sabre jets. And all of a sudden, a dish-shaped craft comes screaming right by their flight path. One of the F-86 Sabre jets called Carswell Air Force Base and asked for permission to break away. He did, and he did a low pass and saw this entire incident go down this this shaped craft it kind of came in at a shallow angle it when it rested it had uh, burnt debris it left a debris trail uh there were charred remains the craft was beat up pretty bad so he does a low pass over the scene itself to get a real good look at this thing so then he peeled back northbound and this happened just across the rio grande river which you see in the cover of their book here so he lands He gets in a car. He drives to a local airport. He picks up a two-seat tail dragger Civil Air Patrol Aranka and flies back to the scene. He lands with 100 yards of the the retrieval operation. Now, the Mexican military is on the scene already. There were 35 vehicles (laughs) 
that were called onto this site. And then there was at least 100 Mexican soldiers involved in this operation. They were waiting for the Americans to arrive. So the deepest black programs that I've been able to determine within this UFO crash retrieval subject matter are the ones that we steal out from the noses of the other governments. But in this particular case, they did work hand in hand with the United States government. They were in fact waiting for the Americans to arrive. So this uh, Air Force pilot, he lands his Civil Air Patrol tail dragger near the craft itself. And I wanna take you to the scene here. Here's the map. You can see Del Rio up in the upper part of the central part of the map here. If we go south, we're gonna go right into the Rio Grande River and then just south of the river, this is where the craft came down. So that's the site picture here. And this is what it looked like. We just did some modifications today to this drawing, so it's even more accurate. The foreground right section is our Air Force pilot. He did come with a friend, so there are two of them. We've got the six-by troop transport. We've got the Jeep. This thing was about 25 feet in diameter, about five feet tall. The dome had popped off, so that's an interesting thing. And there was debris that was kind of spread out through the trail here. And as it was getting colder in the nighttime, the primary eyewitness said that some of the Mexican soldiers were taking covers and they were putting the cover on the debris, which was still warm. It heated up the covers and then they were putting the covers on their bodies to heat them up. Now, if you look at the right-hand rim of the craft, we peel back some of the skin showing you the shrapnel. And then there were four charred bodies that were found inside and one was mangled. It was a gruesome scene, very nasty. So let's see if we can do a little bit of an enhancement here and get you a little bit closer. This is what it may have looked like looking inside the craft. And these were these were charred. Uh, they were not wearing flight suits. Uh, definitely gonna be a very gruesome scene. Now, here's what the pilot said. This is Air Force pilot Robert Willingham. His quote was, quote, arms look like broomsticks. That's what the arms of these things look like. That tracks with the other witnesses who said that the body fa facial, uh, facial features and then also the emaciated, long, elongated arms that went past the knees. This is checking out with the witnesses that we're talking about here. All right, next one. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1955. This has to do with Miss G, and she wanted her name to be protected, but she wanted to come forward to Leonard to tell her what was going on here. This is the Foreign Materials Division at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and this is page 17, act abstract. This is 12. And what she was involved in, we'll move forward here. This scene looks and sounds almost identical to the closing scene at Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've got this massive warehouse with these crates being stored and stacked up here. Who knows what secrets they have in here. She was involved in cataloging. This is just incredible. Cataloging a thousand pieces that came in from the interior of a UFO crash retrieval. She actually cataloged the debris. So this is warehouse building 258. And what they were doing is, and I'm going to move forward, they had these different stations set up. First, there was a gentleman who was taking photographs of each debris. Then they were bagging and tagging it, and then it was her job to catalog the material, and then it, would, it went into, onto the shelving. 
She also mentioned that there was a rollable dolly that went right by where she was working that had two bodies that were being preserved in this formaldehyde preservation fluid. She saw this thing go right past her. So not only did she see the bodies, but she cataloged a thousand components. So they, they can't say that they don't have the debris in the bodies. It's essentially her word against the United States government. And this was her final comment here. Uncle Sam can't do anything to me once I'm in my grave. Six months later, she died. So we have her testimony on file now. Uh, so next time you hear senators and congressmen testify at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and state that they don't have any physical or visual evidence of UFOs, don't believe it. However, they may not have a high enough security clearance to access the material. So that might be the case. So we need to ask the question, if the senators and congressmen are not clued in or read into these programs, and who's running the show? Uh, we do need to consider the testimony of Daniel Inyohe, uh, and he was the uh, senator from Hawaii. And this is what he said during the Iran-Contra hearings. This is Tampa Tribune, August 4th, 1987. The hearing said Inyohe, produced a vision of a secret government directed principally by National Security Council staffers, accountable to not a single elected official, including apparently the president himself, a shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own funding mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of national interest free from all checks and balances in the law itself. So here we, we have evidence of the shadowy government. If we include the defense contractors with the shadowy intelligence government, and then we factor in the United States Navy and the Atomic Energy Commission, all as a united coalition, we have a little bit better understanding who's pulling the strings here on this retrieval operation cover-up here. Source, retrieval, uh, retired Air Force pilot, late 1950s. This came from an interview by Ed Kamarak Jr. And this has to do with a pilot who saw a five to six minute black and white movie film clip. And what this clip depicted was a about a 65, 60 foot diameter dish shaped craft, 10 feet high around the outer dome section wrapped around the outer circumference were these square shaped entry doorway windows. And again, these could may not necessarily be windows and glass as we know them. We could be talking about something different here. Inside the craft, according to this pilot and the five to six minute black and white movie film clip, they had control panels, they had lettering, they had symbols and star charts. Uh, three bodies recovered, they were five feet tall. And so this is sometime during the late 1950s. Here's the blow up of what this propulsion system may look like. Now I'll back up one. There was a hollow breach on the side of the upper dome where what we believed have been the propulsion system that came right on through this thing. So that might have been on impact. And the bottom detail view shows you these display panels with these what look like iconology on the display panels themselves. Next one, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This is April 1962. This has to do with transient pilots who were part of the 354th Tactical Fighter Wing what they were looking for was kind of this mobile racquetball court that they had set up. There were some walls that they could make an entire court out of. So they're going down the row of hangars, 
they notice that one hangar door is open. They, they get inside and they see this interesting dish-shaped craft, 15 feet in diameter. It was propped off the floor by these engine test stands and they had a rope around it with men with rifles guarding the craft. So the uh, MP talks to the leader of the runners here that you see and said, and I'm going to go over to this thing here. The guard challenged by saying, I don't think you're supposed to be here, sir. I replied to the affirmative, and we turned about face and departed mumbling to ourselves that the good old U.S. had developed or had all along flying officers in service. Just the way that this pilot is talking here, it just has the ring of truth to it. It really does. So at the very least, we, we've looked at probably four or five cases where these things are being stored at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This is reference number 53. He was a Navy captain. He encountered a 30-foot diameter dish-shaped craft at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and later he served as a pilot for Braniff Airlines. He was known as PJ. This is date 1963. That's within the Leonard Stringfield collection. Uh, next one here, December 1963. This has to do with a Marine who is based at Cherry Point, North Carolina. This is page 152, case two. Now, here's the thing. This took place literally days after Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963. So it's conceivable. I can't prove it. I don't think Leonard could prove it. But if whatever this thing was, was still at the location where this went down, somewhere in early November, 1963, it's conceivable that President Kennedy may have seen this thing. So let's move forward here. Here is Cherry Point, North Carolina, the Marine Station here. It is north of Havelock, and what happened here is at the dead of night, this Marine is called out of bed. He's told to board a plane with blacked-out windows, and they fly three hours by plane from Cherry Point, North Carolina to an undisclosed location. His job is to guard something within this hangar. Could be a Navy hangar, Air Force hangar, Army facility. We don't know for sure. But his job is to guard whatever is in this hangar. Now, I want to take you inside the hangar. And what did he see? Well, he saw a 40-foot diameter dish-shaped craft about 15 feet tall. It had a very polished chrome exterior surface. It looked like a fat hamburger. There were at least nine opaque, elliptically shaped windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft. And then he said that two things. Number one, these red dots indicate the attempted point of entry. They were using a diamond tip drill bit to get in. That's the first thing. And number two, he said that these seams that made up the entryway hatch door were so totally fully integrated into the skin of the craft itself, you could not tell the difference. It was like it wasn't even there. You could not put a razor blade in between the seam of this hatch. It was totally, perfectly integrated into the craft itself. Here's Joseph Ray's uh, rendering of what the craft looked like. Again, on the bottom, bottom view here, you can see these red dots where they tried to get in with these diamond tip drill bits. And we'll move forward here. 3D uh, images by my good friend Joseph Ray. I want to give him credit. And these are the three things that they used to get inside, according to this Marine. Number one, diamond tip drill bits. Number two, acetylene torch. Number three, a laser. I don't think, according to the information we have from this Marine, 
that they were able to get inside. Maybe they did later, but when he was there, it didn't look like uh, they were able to get inside. Now, here is the original sketch by the Marine himself. This is not my sketch. This is not the sketch from the gentleman who interviewed the Marine back in 1986. This is the actual Marine sketch itself. And you can see what they ended up doing is they had built a series of scaffolding and they built a catwalk around the entire craft itself. It was propped off the hangar floor by about five feet. So you could have white lab coat technicians walk under it. Here you can see he's got the opaque windows that are basically drawn correctly here. Two other things to make mention, upper left corner, upper right corner. The entire interior hangar facility was excruciatingly well lit. We're talking about no shadows. You would need that for the lab coat technicians. And then also here, and this is like the most important part of all, these little black sections below the craft are pads to support it when it was sitting on the scaffolding. I thought that was an interesting point he made out here. Here's a little bit more of a refined drawing by Michael Johnstone. He actually interviewed this Marine back in 1963. And if you look on the left-hand side of this craft itself, you'll notice this lip between the outer skin of the craft itself and the outer portion of these opaque elliptically shaped windows. That's what this Marine had talked about, a visible one inch lip where you could actually feel this with your hand that was the difference between the outer skin of the craft and the outer portion of the window. Now, I wanted to take you to a little bit more refined drawing that I put together. And here you see that this thing is about five feet off the floor. The scaffolding is made up. I've done a detailed view here showing you this one inch lip. We'll rip through some of these bullet items here. Craft was seen at an undisclosed military location three hours by plane from Cherry Point, North Carolina. That's the first thing. Number two, the entire craft was surrounded with what looked like standard military aircraft scaffolding. Next bullet item, a white circle was taped to the floor, which outlined the prohibited area for Air Force generals. Next one, between three to four U.S. Marines guarded the craft while it was temporarily in the hangar. The windows of the craft were indented toward the interior, forming a one-inch lip, detail B, which you see here. The primary eyewitness secretly took a photograph of the saucer, which was later lost in the flood back in 1983. A team of between 20 to 30, 50 engineers examined the craft, but were unable to gain access to the interior. That's interesting. Okay, so here's the full-color rendering by my good friend Joseph Ray shows you very accurately what this would have looked like. I'm talking about almost identical, and I think we can take it to the bank. This is very similar to what it would have looked like. Uh, Jose Sanchez got him to do a, uh, a general drawing of what it might have looked like when they were taking the diamond tip drill bit to the scene. Had no effect of the craft, but... Welcome to the CPAP Games live from the Hayes bedroom. It's another eventful night, Bruce. It sure is, Ron. Steve has been flailing everywhere, struggling with his CPAP. His wife, Michelle, is as tense as a fiddle string, trying to contain her rage. Michelle's rolling Steve over. There he goes, and the mask is off! Oh my, the snoring! Michelle throws an elbow, now a shove! Ah. And she's leaving for the couch, taking her place as the Hayes' 100-pound lab. Bask in that dog breath, Steve. 
With all this struggle, Steve should get Inspire. Absolutely, Bruce. Inspire is a sleep apnea treatment that gives you comfortable, restful sleep with the click of a remote. That's right, a button. As you sleep, Inspire keeps you breathing normally and sleeping peacefully. There's no mask and no hose. Just sleep. Learn more at InspireSleep.com. That's InspireSleep.com. Inspire, sleep apnea innovation. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at inspiresleep.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your engine with Syntec full synthetic motor oil at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Syntec is designed for today's engines to dissipate heat and reduce friction and wear. Get five parts of Syntec full synthetic and a MicroGuard select oil filter for just $33.99, plus two times O Rewards points. Choose Syntec, available exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. damage the drill bit no doubt first pass illustration was by my good friend Joseph John McNeil he did a first pass illustration now what you can see here is this white tape circle on the floor if you did not have access to go and breach that circle you were told to be shot dead that's what the orders were by this marine so we've already tried the diamond tip drill bits that didn't work then they brought in acetylene torches. That didn't work. The third and final thing they tried is they brought in two 18-wheeler tractor-trailer low-boy trucks that had a power generator sitting on a flatbed. And then there were two heavy-gauge cables that ran from these 18-wheelers inside the facility, and they were using a laser to get inside. And we'll talk about an incident that happened here. Sure. Okay, so now what I want to do is I want to walk you through this operation here so now we're outside the gate we're going to move inside now we've got through the gate we're going to take you inside the facility here this is what it may have looked like and this is all by my good friend joseph ray now we're looking at a little bit more of a detailed view you can see you can kind of make out this one inch lip here on the craft itself again a chrome polished exterior no seams no rivets no visible means of propulsion uh, we'll look a little detailed view here. Now you can kind of see, we're, we're just showing you the scene here just so that you can kind of get a look at what it may have looked like. Uh, here's a three-quarter front view from about a 30 to 40 degree look down angle. The catwalk surrounds the entire craft itself. And if you look closely, you can kind of see these pads that are holding it from the bottom here. And another detailed view here. Again, this white circle on the floor is very prominent, a very big part of the entire story. Now, the last day that he was there, they were loading this thing up on a trailer and getting ready to ship it out to the next location. So now we're building a scaffolding around it as a supporting structure. We're going to drape a olive drab U.S. Army tarp around the craft itself. Okay, we're fully tarped now. We're going to move to the next slide, and now we're getting ready to move this thing out of here. So you can see the two ways that they keep all this secret from us as American taxpayers, as people all around the world, is number one, they compartmentalize these cases. And number two, they move these assets from base to base so that none of these things are at any one location for any length of duration time. That's one way, the two ways that they keep these secret. I mean, they, they keep moving these things until they finally end up at Wright-Patterson. And from there, 
that's where we need to find out where these assets are. Okay, so now we're getting ready to move out. We're fully tarped. We're beginning the move out process, and now we're outside the facility. We've shown this in daylight so that you can get a good look at it. And then here's Rudy's first pass drawing on what this may have looked like. Now, after they used the acetylene torch, they actually took this laser and they applied the laser to the side of the craft itself. It bounced off the skin of the craft and it damaged a ceiling tile. This is interesting and very prophetic, you could say. Here's the ceiling tile that's damaged. This is according to the Marine that was involved in this. He was involved in the entire operation for about two weeks when he was guarding it here. Here's his sketch of this laser incident here. Rough sketch, but it kind of shows you what actually happened. The only reason why I bring this up is because if you look at the movie Hangar 18 that came out back in 1980, there are some similarities between what this Marine had talked about, what he saw, what he guarded, and what is in this movie. Number one, there were white lab coat technicians in this movie, just like the Marine had seen. Number two, there was scaffolding in this movie and also scaffolding, which the Marine had identified in 1963. Number three, in this B movie, there's an incident with a laser. <laughs> this Marine had talked about an incident with a laser in 1963. So even Hollywood is tracking who came first. It looks like Hollywood is a belated designer leak for something that may actually have right. taken place. Michael, we got about one he minute also, left with you, my friend. One minute left. Okay. He also mentioned that there were green, yellow, and red uh, color-coded badges, which gave you access. He did take a photograph of this thing, but it was lost in a flood in 1983. Here's what the Minox camera photo may have looked like. And then I'm going to move forward here and give you what he said here. Could the public handle the truth? Here's what he said. There's a certain amount of people who, if the thing was on display down the street, would still rather stay home and watch football. Statement by U.S. Marine, August 22nd, 1986. That's the bottom line. So in other words, we're ready for it. Michael, thank you so much for once again coming on Space Out Radio. And I cannot wait to see you down in Las Vegas with Jim Goodall for our second annual fan party, May 19th through 21st, my friend. We will bring you on again before that because you are just so amazing as well. Thank you so much for being here and educating us. Thank you us. so much, Dave. Coming Thank up, you. Great. Coming up next, we got the Swamp Dweller, then the UFO Report with Tim Senor. Remember, Michael Schratz, YouTube channel, Blue Room Media, all one word. Make sure you go hit subscribe, find his books on Amazon. Hour 3 of Spaced Out Radio is next. Way to go, buddy. Way to go. Good, good to be with you. That was fantastic. Good stuff, Mike. Good Thank stuff. you. Thank you. My only my only hesitations on that is uh, security forces. I'm like, they they flew this dude three hours. They didn't have anybody yep. else that could guard it. There's nobody else in the whole world near it that could guard it. Be right back. <laughs> uh, he was, well, he was with a team that guarded it. And then in one sense, he was left alone. In, in the hangar with the craft, and that's when he took the Minox camera photograph. I got it. And there, were other, other part there were that. other personnel guarding it as well. So anybody that's part of a security force of a Tier 1 asset would not be actually near the asset. They would be at the ECP, the entry control point, 
of that hanger. So that's another interesting, again, I didn't work 50 years ago, mm-hmm. but I can tell you in the last 30 years, that wouldn't have happened 100%. Okay. I won't, I won't argue with you. So I've, I've been in, I've been in hangers. I've been in hangers where guys with rifles were kicked out many times for being mm-hmm. in there and trying to peek. <laughs> They're like, you guys wait outside. You've already seen our ideas. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, really good stuff. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks a lot. So hope to uh, hope to see you guys again soon. And uh, always good to be with you. I know we, Dave took a break, so uh, we'll say goodbye to him. And good to be with you guys. Last last chance. <laughs> Who unmuted me? I unmuted myself. <laughs> Last chance to ask Michael some questions, you guys. Once Dave comes back, we move the swamp dweller. Hit him up. Well, he's here. All good. I'm going to sign off, and uh, good to be with you guys. All right. Thanks, Mike. Get you. Yep. You can't hang in a hanger, random guy. You know what's funny about that? I can't tell you how many times I've been tasked to inspect hangers by myself that had articles inside of them. But tell me more about how it works. I'd really love to hear it. (laughs) What's going on, chat? I'm rude. How am I rude? I'm rude. Okay. Sorry for being rude. If facts are rude, I apologize. Holloman Air Force Base, I had a buddy at work down there. I don't know nothing except they do missile and laser stuff. Me personally, I know nothing. Rumors only. Can't tell you anything for sure. This presentation was great. Um, I love learning this stuff. I love learning these stories. Uh, I just see where there's holes in it. And again, he's just going off of, you know, reports, stuff that people have said and whatnot. So I'm not blaming him. I just say there's some inconsistencies with policies, regulations, SOPs, and the way we actually do things with some of these reports. Now, if they're from 1955, what can I say? I wasn't there. Maybe they were just doing dumb shit back then. But nowadays, no. That's <laughs> not how it works at all, you guys. The chat don't like real questions. <laughs> no, it's pretty much pretty good. But, like, I just don't understand why they hate you guys. I don't like to be... I'm just a regular dude. That's why I go by random guy. Like, I can get sassy. I can be sarcastic. I can be an ass. People tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I'm like, eh, I'm going to make you look stupid real quick. I get bored. Same same as you guys. I'm human. I don't make any money. I'm not a celebrity. I just know stuff. Random guy. That was pretty awesome. Which part? Everything. I'm just let, I'm just letting the people know, Dave. You know me. I'm a straight shooter. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not going to be bullied. But at the same time, I don't mean to, I don't intend to be rude to anybody ever. Yeah. But if you're going to call me, but if you're going to call me out, I will make you regret it pretty quickly. <laughs> Random guy. Uh, let's say hello to Thin Lizzie. How are you, my dear? And uh, Thomas Fessler, uh, Filth takes Friday nights off. He has an art. He has art classes on Friday. <coughs> hmm. Yeah. So it's all good. Timmy's not in studio yet. And just so we're clear, chat. I, I, I can see you guys going back and forth. No one needs to defend me. I'll defend myself. I'm just simply saying I know what I'm speaking of. So if it comes off of arrogant, that's not my intention. I'm just literally informing you. If that offends you that I'm giving you facts, I can't really help your feelings. But that's not my intention. Yeah. Yeah. Random guy. We got uh, 30 seconds. Uh, big thank you tonight to D. Cohen, Mark, Nancy, Pam H., uh, Nero, Carlito, JSCO, Atlantis, Deb, Jeremy, Times Two, Jenny, Maggie, and Nancy again. Thank you for the love. And uh, yeah, it's all good. It's all good, people. We're all having fun. Here we go. Hour three. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Third and final hour of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. We very much appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor and hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Yon side. Yonside is your password. Use it wisely, space travelers, as the clam sets password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. It is time once again where we head to the swamp. Our resident swamp dweller takes us on another spooky journey. Hi, Spaced Out Radio listeners. This is Swamp Dweller. It's time for your nightly dose of spookiness on the show. If you have an interesting encounter or a spooky story that you would like to share, be sure to submit them in at swampdweller.net. You can also find our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash swampdwellerreads. Now, let's chill out, relax, and together, let's enter the swamp. This is the story of my first and last camping experience. I was 16 at the time, and my family, my mother, sister, and brother, had made plans to go out camping with our aunt, uncle, and two cousins over the weekend. 
This was my family's first real camping trip, while my cousins, aunt, and uncle had gone camping dozens of times. Our first afternoon and evening out camping actually went quite well. I surprisingly had quite a bit of fun. It was later that night, maybe around 10.30 or so, my cousins, my sister, and myself were settling into our tent. We were lying in our makeshift bed when we heard footsteps circling around our tent. Slightly alarmed by this, we sat up and noticed that whoever was outside circling the tent was holding what we assumed to be a stick and tracing the tent as they circled it. At one point, my sister sticks her hand out and feels a leg through the tent's fabric. We knew it wasn't our mother, as she has a trach, and her breathing is very deep and distinct. It wasn't our brother, because he was only five at the time, and we heard a grown adult's footsteps. The weight behind them really let us know that it wasn't a child. Our cousins informed us that it was probably their dad who always liked to play pranks, especially at nighttime. We decided to look out the small window of the tent, or flap, or whatever you really want to call it, I don't know. It gave us a great view of the whole campsite. We looked towards the road that was right by our site, and on the road with my aunt and uncle walking back from the restrooms. My cousins, sister, and I started to connect the dots. Whoever was outside circling our tent wasn't a member of our family. It was a complete stranger. And all that separated us from that individual was a tiny layer of fabric. As our uncle and aunt approached our campsite, we called for them to come over to our tent and told them what happened. Everything stopped after we talked to our aunt and uncle. We assumed the individual ran away when our aunt and uncle approached our campsite. My cousins and sister were still understandably freaked out about what had just happened. I, on the other hand, was so tired that I wasn't able to process what happened and how scary it actually was. The rest of the trip went seemingly well, and I enjoyed the rest of it as much as I possibly could. The worst part of it all is that nobody believed us. In fact, our aunt and uncle and mother made fun of us and told us that we were just being paranoid, as my cousin, sister, and I love everything creepy from conspiracy theories to urban legends. It still bothers me all this time later, because I never found out who that individual was or what their intentions were. I also think, what could have happened if our aunt and uncle didn't come when they did? It's not like we'd be able to defend ourselves, as we were just teenage girls. Ever since then, I've been turned off of camping, and I don't see myself going again in the future. And that's why we love the random guy that we call Swamp Dweller around here. Swamp Dweller is a great part of this show. We kick off every third hour with another story from Swamp Dweller. And, uh, you know, we love him around here. You could go to his YouTube channel and hear thousands of more stories for free by going to youtube.com forward slash Swamp Dweller Reads. From the swamp to the stars, we bring in our resident Timbit, Little Timmy Senor, and the UFO Report. Nobody's going to know. They're going to know. Always good.
good to have you here, little Timmy Senor. It's a it's a busy night. We got random guy in all night long, and he's stirring up things. And oh my goodness, what a day it has been, my friend! What a day it has been. Yeah, I don't even really know where to start. I'm I'm kind of like in in a wow state. I thought that we were done talking about balloons and UFOs in the same sentence, and here we are again. <laughs> I know. Deja vu. But you know what? All the reports, it's weird. All of the reports out there are saying this second one isn't a balloon. It could be yeah. something else. I don't know what it is, but I'll tell you, all those alphabet agencies that are listening right now, Please give us a call. Come into our chat room. Let us know who you are. And you know what? Is this where I talk? Oh, oh yeah. never mind. <laughs> uh, random guy. Uh, and and let us know where, you know, let us know uh, what's actually happening up in Alaska. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Right. Right. And before we dive into it, because that is our top story, um, I just wanted to briefly point out how convenient it is that in our 2022 annual report on UAP, word for word, we have 163 characterized as balloon or balloon-like entities in preparation for what we are seeing in our headlines right now. And so many questions are being winged our way. Um, you know, were they planning this second takedown, this first takedown? Were they planning to cover the second takedown with the balloon-like entity explanation for who knows what? Um, so many questions. So many questions. And um, how did they word for word know what we were going to see just weeks in our future? Very interesting. Balloon-like entities swarming into our UAP report in a weird way and swarming into our skies in even weirder ways. I know. I know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what the reports come out over the next few days regarding this. You know, who knows what that craft is, man? Who knows what they brought down in uh, Alaska? We are still. I think, I think there's a few people that know. Random guy, you got any news <laughs> on that? Well, uh, other than what I, I'm not going to share what I text you, but. Uh, there's definitely remains to be seen what's going to come out of this. It was not what it seemed. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I can't confirm. I'm waiting on that second confirmation, but I know the, I know the assets involved. I know the armament involved. Uh, I have not got a confirmation. When you stay at a Verbo, you always get the whole home, the whole upstairs, the whole downstairs and the whole nap room. Only whole vacation homes. Always all yours. Book on the Verbo app. Is your new year still falling flat? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy. But Planet Fitness has the cure. Boost your energy with tons of equipment in our clean and spacious clubs for $1 down and $10 a month. No commitment. Cancel any time. Deal ends February 16th. See Home Club for details. I'm getting two different conflicting stories about what it was they recovered. So as I told you, I told you a little bit more in text, but I'm going to wait for a confirmation before you share that with the people. But it was not just a grade A balloon flying over. I can assure you that. Right. 
and even in ABC News top stories, they are discussing how the search for UFOs helped lead U.S. government to Chinese spy balloons, which is an interesting top story. A U.S. intelligence review of how UFO incidents played a role, and that is very interesting. How we are now blending these two topics, Dave? Did you want to chime in before I get into this article? No, you go right ahead. You go right ahead. Let's let's get so, into. Yeah, so the U.S. intelligence community's review of UFO incidents reported by U.S. military personnel in recent years played a role in the detection of China's fleet of surveillance balloons, according to a U.S. official. And so in the wake of the shootdown of a surveillance balloon this past weekend, U.S. officials have disclosed that China has developed a fleet of surveillance balloons like the one that traversed the United States last week before being shot down on Saturday. On Monday, General Van Herc, commander of NORAD and U.S. Northern Command, told reporters that there had been earlier intrusions near or in U.S. airspace by Chinese surveillance balloons during the Trump administration, but they had not been detected by his command at the time. And so in the quote, he says, we did not, did not detect those threats, and that's a domain awareness gap that we have figured out, Van Hurt told reporters. And so the intelligence made NORAD aware of the threat posed by the surveillance balloons after the fact through additional means of collection and made us aware of those balloons that were previously approaching North America or transit to North America. But the senior military commander responsible for threats to the United States would not specify what techniques were employed by the U.S. intelligence to determine the capabilities of the balloons. And so maybe our we may have a little more insight there in our group, but it appears that the ongoing review by the U.S. intelligence community and Pentagon of hundreds of unexplained UAP incidents reported by military personnel was one of the techniques that helped identify that China was carrying out a foreign surveillance program using balloons, according to a U.S. official. And so the UAP is a federal government new term to describe UFOs. And so that review of UAP incidents in the recent years required by congressional legislation helped inform the identification process of the threat posed by China's balloon program and how it is being done according to the official. So, however, a senior official has stressed that the UAP findings should not be conflated with the balloons being used with that being used by China. Another official emphasized that China's fleet of surveillance balloons was detected through a broad variety of means. And so the UAP review, led by Pentagon's AAP Resolution Office and the National Director of Intelligence, seeks to find explanations for hundreds of reported incidents that now number more than 500. And so the DNI's most recent update, released a month ago, found that terrestrial explanations for more than half of the 366 new reports since the first un unclassified report released in the summer of 2021. Balloon or balloon-like entities were found to be the reason for the vast majority of those terrestrial explanations. And so now in this original DNI report indicated that some of the possible reasons that could eventually be found for many unexplained incidents in that report might include technologies deployed by China, Russia, or other nations, or perhaps a non-government entity. And so 
Now ABC News is reporting and finding that foreign surveillance was also deemed to a factor in recent incidents, according to the U.S. official, who added that it could not be determined who was responsible, though most likely the candidates would be China or Russia since they have most interest in monitoring the U.S. military. So it looks like they have been looking at balloon and balloon-like entities for quite a while through more than just Trump administration, but definitely through that. And they were being called UFO. And so this program was probably delegated in part to weed out what is truly UFO and what was actually balloon-like entities. And so specifically in our report that was weeded out in a way to perhaps mitigate what we're seeing now and put an explanation forward to why we have the now response that we've seen with the takedown of these balloons. Well, right now we got to correct you. It's one balloon that we know of. Okay. Um, That's great. And I appreciate that um, because it is being called an object over Alaska. Thank you for that. Correct. Yeah. I, I don't mean to be, be a jerk about that. So, Right. I was just going by what they're going in this article stating multiple balloons over multiple years. And they were saying some of those were balloon or balloon like entities. So thank you for that correction over Alaska. That is definitely an object. I appreciate that. correction. It it is going to be interesting to see. I mean, how many more stories about these types of balloons come out, you know, because it is the hot button topic that the media is going to uh, uh, jump on for the next little bit. Right now, we have a count of one, one official one, because there was people in the public who actually filmed it and watching that amazing explosion that, you know, it, it just, it's surreal. It's really surreal that that is happening right now. And, you know, regarding Alaska, well, like Random Guy said, we got to wait for more information to come out to see what it actually was that happened there. Could you imagine if that was something anomalous i mean and we took it down i don't think i mean tim i know random guys right there listening but i don't think we learn about it i don't think we know about it or it's covered up with something else i think it was pretty clear about the procedure that's in place with you guys privately right right that's interesting i mean either way i mean just knowing that they are calling it an object publicly And I think that that was even um, in the public statement that was made by the military earlier today that I I was interested in just that, that the fact is, is that he was very vague on what the object was. And um, that report screamed that I wanted more information, you know, the fact that they weren't calling it a balloon, but it came just days after um, we had the balloon. And I feel like you know, we as the public are to assume, you know, we are led to perhaps think that it is another balloon. I feel like the clue here, guys, is when the official report comes out, look at the distance that this object, whatever it is, whatever they claim it is, look at the distance it was engaged from versus the object, the balloon that we know was engaged by the F-22. If it was a balloon, would it not make sense logically that it would be engaged with a similar aircraft, similar armament, and similar distance. And I want you guys to pay close attention to when the truth comes out, regardless of what they say it is, 
how far away it was when it got shot. Um, I believe in the earlier statement the military put out that it was taken down by the same exact F-22 and the same uh, the same missile. And I forget the name of the missile. I wish I'd written it down. A- but um, AIM-9 MIC. Thank you. X. That's exactly it. Um, in his public report earlier, that he stated that they took it down with the same exact method. Did they give a range? No. Okay. No, a lot of the details were left out. Um, actually, a lot of the questions that were posed by the media were great questions, and he um, did a good job of answering very specifically on quite a lot of them, but things like that, he said that he would provide later to the media. Okay, because we know what the operational range of that missile is. Right. And I'm just, I'm just curious, that's all. I'm curious for all the details. I'm not saying. See if you can review. um, I'm not saying it's anything that it's not. Yeah. I'm just saying it's a little suspicious. So there's indicators there that would disqualify some explanations. And I'm sure that's what they're trying to make sure is all lined up right now. Tim, do we know how long this object had been tracked? Great question. Um, I'm going to bring up another story on it. Um, no, I don't have that information. I don't think that was released. Or I would have it right here. I could be wrong. But I don't think that they told how long they had been tracking it. They only talk about how long they were tracking it once it came into our airspace. And I believe it was taken down the same day. The, the second object in Alaska was taken down the same day as it came into the Alaskan airspace. If you have that report from you, Tim, could you tell me, could you confirm that they reported this object at 40,000 feet and not at 60 something? That is absolutely 100% correct. So if this was a high altitude balloon, would 40,000 feet make sense to you? No, but it is their specific reason for why they took it down because they believed it to be, um, pose a threat to aviation. That was the specific reason at 40,000 feet. Because it was in class airspace for civilian travel. Correct. Okay. But just so we're clear, it was nearly 40% lower in altitude than the other five that are being tracked globally right now from China, including the one that was downed, that are all at an altitude in excess of 62,000 feet currently, right now. 100% correct. Okay. I don't know why I'm bringing this up. I'm just, I'm just I do. provoking, I'm provoking a stimulating conversation. Because no, I I'm think just, it's the right question. I'm just, an, and... I'm just an idiot, but pay attention to the details, people. And you'll get the answers you want. Indeed. And I appreciate that. Um, This second article, unless you'd like to move on, um, I can cover a couple of things here. We have about two minutes here. Perfect. So at least three Chinese spy balloons traversed the U.S. airspace and potentially more under the Trump administration. Um, And I think that that was kind of the posing... Um, narrative coming into the second story over Alaska, because I mean, that was really put out today more than previously. Anyway, so those balloons did pass over sites that would be strategic uh, of interest to China or Russia, for that matter. And intelligence analysis slowly revealed that the extent of China's program spanned at least five continents and goes back years. So, um, 
all kind of relatively interesting information as far as that program goes, knowing that we do have a historical historical knowledge of it, right? So um, I feel like that definitely plays in. Um, I hope at some point we can put the balloon story to bed and talk more about this object over Alaska, because I feel like that is far more of interest than balloons. Am I right? It could be. It It could could be. be. And so we're waiting on more information on that. We're waiting on information on everything. the The early reports, though, without getting into speculation... Well, I guess it's kind of speculation because it's a telephone game, hearing hearing things from hearing things from people, right? But there's multiple people, um, news sources even on Twitter and stuff that where there's alleged leaks, not going to say from my sources, um, that have said that the reason that they called it an object and not a balloon was not only the altitude it was flying at, but the way it broke up when it hit impacted the ground because it didn't break up like a single solitary object. It broke up like a dynamic structured vehicle. You can Google it. Yeah. And to be clear, it broke up over ice in particular. Hey, who is that? What? What happened? Oh, random guy accidentally uh, smiled. What happened? Uh, we will go to break here on Spaced Out Radio. We got the UFO report with little Timmy Senor and our random guy coming on in on Spaced Out Radio. Where do we go next? I don't know. We're off the rails tonight, and I love it. It's the way it should be on the mighty SOR. Good stuff. Yeah, where did random guy go? I think he had a phone. Did he, he dropped his camera into his cocktail. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Poor guy. It's hard. it's really hard to hold a cell phone, a cocktail, and crack jokes and keep your wig on straight. I know. I know. Great show tonight. Mr. Shret is packed with information. I cannot wait to meet him in person in Vegas. Hold on. <laughs> oh. All right. I love it. Coming from a tech guy, I I find this just so amusing. He he has a YouTube video chat or a video series on tech. And, uh, this guy. Chat room, you need to relax a little bit tonight, man. You guys are all fired up. 
Oh, yeah. Have fun with it, y'all. Yeah. Oh, it's just comedy, 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 comedy. Did you want to move on to story number two? Yeah, let's. When we come back? Yeah, let's do that. Cool. Let me get to your story. What's that? I'm just looking at your stories here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you already know number three. Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to number two or number three? Yeah, let's jump to number three because something happened to number two. Okay. Yeah, let's let's jump to three. All right. Sure. Unless you're interested in yeah, more spy balloon shit. Scheiße. Yeah, dark protocol. That that's not called for. Okay. William Barrett, Travis, welcome. I have an email of UFO project 2024 at gmail.com. If you want to send me an email chat, hold on, Tim. Here we go.
around a third. We're heading for home tonight on Spaced Out Radio. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate earning your listening ears. Want to remind you that if you missed portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor. Hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Here we go. Tim Senor, there's been a lot of action happening up in Canada recently with reports of UFOs flying around. Once again, not a defense threat to Canadian airspace, according to the Department of National Defense. What do you got for us? I love it. Yeah, so this month we got the 2022 Canadian UFO survey report from Canada. Wasn't like pulling teeth like it was in the United States. They just delivered it pretty much on time, the same way they have for all the previous years. And so this is actually their 34th year of collecting and analyzing Canadian UFO report data. Is your new year still falling flat? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy. But Planet Fitness has the cure. Boost your energy with tons of equipment in our clean and spacious clubs for $1 down and $10 a month. No commitment. Cancel any time. Deal ends February 16th. See Home Club for details. Business today looks nothing like it did yesterday. While it's more unpredictable, its possibilities are endless. At ADP, turning unpredictability into an advantage is what we do. Using data-driven insights, we design HR solutions to help businesses work better, smarter, so they can think beyond today and find even more success tomorrow. HR, time, talent, benefits, payroll. ADP, always designing for people. By UFOlogy Research, and the total number of Canadian UFO reports in the database now is more than 23,500 in total. And so it's available to the public, and you can go and take a look at all 34 years of reports in those surveys, and they're available online. And so I'm here tonight to bring some of those highlights of the 2022 Canadian UFO survey um, in a brief summary of results. And so to highlight it, Uh, There were 768 UFO sightings recorded in Canada in 2022, a slight increase of about 6% from 2021. The number of UFO sightings reported in Canada in 2022 was the fourth lowest over the past 20 years. In 2022, Quebec led all Canadian provinces with about 29% of all the Canadian UFO reports, edging out Ontario's 28%. This is the first time that Quebec has recorded the most Canadian UFO reports in a single year since the UFO Canadian survey began in 1989. And so BC had 14% unchanged from 2021. And other provinces and territories had negligible changes in report numbers from the previous year. In 2022, about 8.2% of all UFO reports were classified as unexplained. 8.2. That's a lot. That's a lot, Dave. That, 
that's a lot of reports that are unexplained. That's that's big numbers. The typical UFO sighting lasted approximately 13 minutes in 2022. That's a long time as well. <laughs> Let's just repeat that. The typical UFO sighting lasted approximately 13 minutes in 2022. That's fantastic. Based on the number of reports in 2022 and using the average number of witnesses per case as 1.37, more than 1,000 Canadians had sightings of UFOs in 2022. The study found that in 2022, about 52% of all UFO sightings were of simple lights in the sky, similar to previous years. Witnesses also reported triangles, spheres, and boomerangs. Results of the study show that many people continue to report unusual objects in the sky, and some of these objects do not have obvious explanations. Many witnesses are pilots, police, and other individuals with reasonably good observation capabilities and good judgment. At least two UFO sightings are, repa- are reported each day in Canada. Some of these could have explanations, such as military exercises and overflights occurring over populated areas. In addition, people are often unaware of the nature of conventional or natural objects in the sky, such as Starlink and surroundings, making a conscious effort to report them to organizations and agencies seeking to monitor UFO activity. Popular opinion to the contrary is that no incontrovertible evidence that some UFO cases involve extraterrestrial contact. The continued reporting of UFOs suggests a need for further examination of the phenomenon by social, medical, and or physical scientists. And then it goes into detailing the UFO reports in Canada. And so it's fantastic to see some similarities and some very, you know, blatant differences in the reports we see from the United States and from Canada. And from Canada, we see no threat. There's no words of threat. And it just talks of very obvious and simple reports. And it's because there is no threat, Timmy. Well, my point is just that it's we're seeing very, you know, big differences in how we're presented a report as well. There is absolute transparency in the Canadian report. I can just tap on a year on um, this website and it'll bring up all of the reports for me and it'll definitely it'll tell me you know whether it's an orb or it's a light in the sky and i can tap on it and get details there's no such reporting that i know of so far from the united states well i i understand there is no threat okay even what uh yeah like uh, gfgfg says in the chat room anonymous rex looks like he chews on pennies that's what right. What does that mean? A lot of iron in my diet. It's called having fun, man. So little oh, tension, ar- little tension around the chat rooms tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, dude. I totally would if I could. But great stuff. Um, I enjoyed this full report. Also, I must say, there's a lot of details. Um, they go into. They actually run polls in Canada. Sorry, you're having a, <laughs> you're having a blast over there. But I, I love the fact that um, Canadians also um, don't disregard, for example, witnesses ranging from farmhands to airline pilots. They're all in here, from teachers to police officers. Um, each report is given the same credentials and um, 
you know, that I think we still have to see that kind of transparency in the U.S. Remember, though, 90% of the Canadian population lives within 100 kilometers or 62 miles of the U.S. border. Okay, so the question mm-hmm. is, how many of those reports are are not going through or how many sightings are happening way up north that will never see the light of day because in certain areas there is no internet and there is no reporting system. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Um, And so it continues on talking about how they get into data collection and they source groups and organizations like AQU. Um, I don't know a lot of these Gar, Garpan, MUFON, New Fork, UFOBC, UFOlogy Research, and UFOSNW. And then government sources include Transport Canada, Service, CIR, VIS reports. And then they actually scour social media, including Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, and YouTube. So they're even being transparent on, on what sources they use for putting together their reports. And this method has not changed significantly for the past 30 years. Obviously, that would change with social media, but this has been their transparency, their reporting system, and um, they don't scrutinize reports. Everything is included in here. Um, Interestingly, I do see that they do something called field reporting, where there are 16 fields that are um, included in each report. And um, based on so one through 16 is, is each a different field and you can search based on the field. For example, the year or the month, the date, the time, the location, the province, the type, the duration, the color. You could search by witness or the shape, or you could search by the strangeness of the report. Now that's interesting. The reliability. So there's obviously a scale of reliability on the report. They have a field 14, which is the source Field 15 is evaluation and 16 is comments. So all of that is searchable. And then beyond that, it goes into its distribution of the reports across Canada and how they distribute the information. So it's not like they just produce a report. They make sure that those surveys are given to the right people. And it looks like they're handed to representatives in metropolitan areas all across. Uh, so Toronto through Winnipeg and, and everywhere in between. So that's interesting, too, that they're even transparent on who receives the reports. I mean, this is practically unheard of in the United States. Dave, why why aren't we taking any notes from Canada down here in the U.S.? I think because we don't have the reporting factors that they do. And until the UFO mess gets cleaned up up here and some sort of Canadian task force or or office is made for UFOs, then you will see more of a joint uh, reaction to what's going on. But, you know, the difference is the military down there controls everything. I mean, you guys got a lot of stuff going on down there, okay? You're a world superpower, the biggest superpower in the world. You're going to protect everything, including little old Canada here, even though we're 2-0. Uh, and anyways, you know, but up here, we got to bring it together. 
you got to realize when it comes to military and everything, it's about 16th to 20th on the budget list, not number one. So that is a big difference on how the reporting is also uh, brought forward and stuff like that. That's interesting. Um, Do you want to skip to our second story of the night, or would you like to bring in RG and get his opinion? No, RG's not coming back. Is he down for the count? Okay. his system went down. All right. Oh, his system went down. What a a nerd. I love it. Nerd. So for our next topic for the night, if you're cool with that, I know we're going to have to squeeze it in here. Um, but a new ta- a new article coming in from the Hill is saying that the ocean science I'm sorry the ocean science community must put science before stigma with anomalous phenomenon and they're obviously talking about all domain an- anomalous phenomenon and so they're talking about things that are un- under the water as well and so the all minted all newly minted rather all domain anomaly resolution office within the office of the secretary of defense has begun to conduct these investigations and the assignment of the highly accomplished physicist and intelligence officer, Sean Kirkpatrick as its first director appears to indicate that the Pentagon is taking on the issue quite seriously. And so even more extraordinary during the 2021 interview on 60 minutes, Former Navy pilots David Fravor and Alex Dietrich provided a detailed description of their encounter with the UAP while conducting pre-deployment training with the USS Nimitz aircraft. And so that was back in 2004. While they were flying their FA-18F Super Hornet aircraft, they initially observed an area of roiling white water in the ocean's surface below them. And so hovering just below Uh, them was what looked like a white tic-tac and the white water may have indicated the presence of a larger UAP even below. And so the UAP there were observing and it had recently emerged from the sea below indicating the, the occurrence of the under the, I'm sorry, the unidentified undersea phenomenon, which they're coining here as a UUP directly. So um, the implications of these observations are profound and society may be on the verge of answering one of the greatest questions regarding our existence. You know, are we alone? And so how is it that these anomalous observations have not risen to the level of other science priorities, such as climate change, simply put stigma and the attention given many non-scientific fringe enthusiasts to the UAP arena has tainted the topic repulsing those who rightly seek to maintain their scientific integrity, professional reputation. And so additionally, the U.S. government thwarted objective analysis of UAPs out of a concern that adversaries would use them as a psychological warfare tool to sow mass hysteria and panic. And so despite major progress in the investigation of UAP by the DOD, NASA, and scientific organizations like Harvard, and Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, there is no corresponding scientific effort to investigate similar anomalies that have been dedicated and detected in the world's oceans. And so three immediate actions would remedy scientific neglect of scientific similar anomalies in the vast and vital maritime domain. 
First would be a White House-led Ocean Policy Committee that should amend the opportunities and actions for ocean science and technology to add UUP research as the seventh area for immediate opportunity. Second would be to have the Naval Studies Board and the National Academies. They should conduct a survey together of anomalous undersea observations and make recommendations for national research programs. And then uh, finally, the UN. A decade of view of ocean science and sustainable development should endorse an ocean decade action to create an international effort to research the UUP. And so the flagship international collaboration program for ocean science is driven by the UN's 17, I'm sorry, sustainable development goals, and many of which might benefit from technology advances resulting from such research. And so it's a win-win situation. We need more research in the oceans, get deeper, find out what's actually down there. And that's what this is talking about, bringing it globally together and politically together. I cannot understand or fathom the technology that it would take to not have these these metals, these craft are having, collapsing on each other from the pressure of water. Especially where some of these reports are happening, where they're recording them way deeper than any submarine can go. Okay? Yeah. And the speed at which they can travel at as well it is it, it dumbfounds me you know it really does and and look i'm not going in the ocean to figure it out you know me man i don't like water well i do but you know water that does not include things that want to kill you like sharks right. and megalodon and kraken and whatever else is in there so the idea behind it is this I think that technology would be great to move humanity forward. I agree. Right? And I just don't know how we get there. I don't know what we need to do in order to crack that code. Yeah. If we followed these three steps, we'd be going in the right direction. You know, but it is big moves and it's asking for a lot of support. But if RG was in the room with us, he would probably bring up the fact that he has a buddy that saw something pop out of the water, hover for a second, and then shoot off into space at 65,000 miles per hour. And it made his buddy scared. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's something. There's something in our oceans, you know? And, and hey, if they're coming from somewhere far away, why not hide out below the seas? That's a perfect place. Why not? You know that the humans can't get there question right. is what else is there what else are they hiding i mean th- dude it, it's so much like the 90s movie the abyss love that film and it was a great great film you know and if you haven't seen it you should right it's got to be somewhere on netflix yeah. or or amazon prime and that's another film kind of like close encounters that makes you wonder how much the director is in the know and the writer. There is only like how- there is only three films I trust him. Flight of the Navigator, the Disney movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and The Abyss. To me, yeah. those are the three 
most accurate films regarding what we deal with with the phenomena. Yeah, and not to get too far off topic, but would you say James Cameron and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were people that potentially were, and J.J. Abrams would would be people that possibly had insight? I mean, the list is longer, obviously, in history. Whoever, I'm slipping on who wrote Star Trek, but um, obviously these people had some kind of friends with insight, you know, that can't all be from their imagination. It was so on target, you know, and to think that the abyss could potentially be a reality. I know um, when I first saw it, I, I felt like that, that felt like a reality. It's a great film. So yeah, absolutely. I encourage people to go watch them, especially, especially flight of the navigator. Yes. It has, you know, a lot of weird stuff in it. But you talk to people who have allegedly flown the craft. This is very surreal, considering the movie's nearly 40 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you remember the film Explorers? It was a Disney film about kids that created a warp bubble or a, a bubble that could float and they created a little craft that would go inside the bubble and they were flying no, it. I don't remember it's a that. great Disney film. Don't you know, I'm going back to this article I just quoted from, from the Hill and they've come up with this term unidentified undersea phenomenon, UUP specifically. And I see it being used with the Nimitz uh, incident and we're seeing that happening again. I'm just wondering how much more of this do you think we're going to see in the news? Oh, if the journalists who are covering this story have anything to do with it, I'm going to end it with this, Tim. Probably nothing. (laughs) Probably nothing. And on that note, Tim, thank you for a wonderful UAP report, UFO report here on Spaced Out Radio. Thank you you to Random Guy for joining in, Swamp Dweller, and Michael Schratt for making this a very, very interesting evening indeed. We got Mr. Ron Bubblefoot Thal rocking in the background with Little Brother is watching. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. Rocking us in and out of every single show. Get your horns up for the guitar god himself. Special thanks to everybody listening in at home, at work, in your cars, wherever you may be. Thank you to everyone in our chat rooms tonight. YouTube, Twitch, LGAP, Facebook, Spreaker, LinkedIn, the Space Travelers Club, and on Twitter at hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Remember, this show is copyright by Spaced Out Radio and SOR Media Ventures Limited. Thank you so much for choosing to share your evening with us. Because together, my friends, we own the night. Mr. Bumblefoot, we need a favor. We need you to take us home. Yes, the Wu train has docked for the night. But soon, my friends, we shall ride again. Your seats are always available. Your tickets never expire. And if you want to bring a friend, they've got room too. 
Good night. Is your new year still falling flat? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy. But Planet Fitness has the cure. Boost your energy with tons of equipment in our clean and spacious clubs for $1 down and $10 a month. No commitment. Cancel any time. Deal ends February 16th. See Home Club for details. Businesses need to think beyond today. That's why ADP uses data-driven insights to design HR solutions to help your business find more success tomorrow. HR. Time. Talent. Benefits. Payroll. ADP. Always designing for people. 